Hey, if you're ready for the Masters, you should be ready for the Fairway Rolling Doe Leaderboard Series. You can play against me and Joe House and the Ringer team for your chance to earn a Ringer Championship jacket. We're going to be going through all the majors, but the first one is the Masters. Enter now. Go to FanDuel. Check it out. Search for Fairway Rolling Doe Leaderboard Series or Fairway Rolling Doe, and you will find it and you will enter the contest and you will get to compete against us. Do it now. This episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast is presented by State Farm. If you've ever been in an accident and you're okay, but you know what happened, your first reaction is going to be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car or a new anything, there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it. I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe. The world can be pretty dangerous, so it's nice to know Simply Safe has my back with advanced home security. That puts me first. What are you worried about? What are you worried about in life? Well, if you're a parent, you're constantly worried about your kids, the health and safety of your kids. Uh, maybe you're a dog person. Maybe, maybe it's just you and your dog. Maybe you're like, every time I leave, I'm terrified somebody's going to take my dog. Keep you and your loved ones safe and don't worry about any of this stuff. Try Simply Safe today. Right now, my listeners can get an exclusive 20% discount on a new system with fast protect monitoring which is great, by the way. Just go to simplysafe.com slash BS. Once again, simplysafe with two eyes, simplysafe.com slash BS. There's no safe like Simply Safe. We're also brought to you by the ringer.com as well as the Ringer Podcast Network. We have a new rewatchables going up on Monday night. Lethal Weapon. You might've heard of it. One of the best action movies of the 80s. One of the early icons. We broke it down, me and Chris Ryan. So you got that. More importantly, New podcast alert. Oh, yeah. New York, New York with John Yastrzemski. It launched a little bit before you probably heard this podcast. It's going to be Sunday nights, Tuesday nights, Thursday nights. He had CC Sabathion to break down the big baseball weekend. He also did some March Madness and some gambling picks. Follow that podcast if you love New York sports, if you love to hate New York sports, and if you love gambling. John Yastrzemski, New York, New York. That is our new podcast. Speaking of podcasts, coming up. Ryan Russell and I are going to talk about a pretty fun March Madness, as well as some NBA stuff as we head into the stretch run here. It's all next. First, World Chip. All right, taping this uh, 5.30 Pacific time, Sunday night, just watched the women's championship. Stanford beat uh, Arizona, and the coach for Stanford hadn't won in 29 years. I, I wanted more tears from her. I wanted her to be more upset. But, Priscilla, March Madness, it feels like it's back. I can't tell if it's COVID. I can't tell if we're just desperate for anything. I can't tell if we've been holed up too, too much. But that game last night, that Gonzaga-UCLA game, 
um, felt like a water cooler college basketball game of which there was really not been since the Villanova UNC title game five years ago. But this is the kind of basketball I grew up with. Huge, awesome, momentous, well-played college basketball games, big stars, stars you could see in the NBA, and then uh, an incredibly dramatic ending. I was fired up. I loved it. I want to start more with the women's tournament because I think I know that you were locked into the final. Um, I I watch. I want to see Romeo Langford play today, so I'll admit I'm. Uh, I'm you, you you were toggling between the Celtics and the uh, and the Arizona game. I jumped on the Arizona bandwagon because I liked their point guard. She reminded me of uh, Williams. She was like a little Isaiah Thomasy against UConn. She kind of won me over. I was hoping she was gonna. You were gonna say she reminded me of you at Holy Cross in your pickup games because I was just no no just, no. I was gonna just stop the pop. I was just gonna be like, all right, we're done, we're done. Uh, Way all right, faster. Do you watch it with your daughter? Because I, I imagine, you know, that's kind of the stage. She's playing a ton of sports. Or are you just doing it by yourself? No, I, I really like the drama of the women's final four. And I was actually ready to come in here if that, that, you know, before we that Gonzaga game was incredible. Just being like, what is happening here with women's college basketball versus men's college basketball? For me personally, just because I like the drama of it. I like the fact that the players are on the same team for a couple of years, that the coaches don't seem to change. There's a stability to it that I feel like with men's college basketball has really gone sideways over the last 10, 15 years. And especially now that we have this transfer rule in, but, but the flip side of that is what's happened with Gonzaga this year, where they have this traditional old school, you know, college team. One of the best players is 22. Uh, they have an awesome freshman recruit who's probably one and done, but, um, going for the undefeated season, the coach that's been there forever. And they're the type of team that I grew up with those, you know, those, iconic college basketball programs where it just kind of makes sense. Some guys stay for a couple of years. Other guys just come and go. Yeah. I definitely think too, this tournament, both of them have been awesome. Um, and to not have it for a year because as we sit here and we look at like the battle for the audience, in, at least in the United States, right? The battle for the audience and trying to figure out like how it works. I've always thought the NFL was just going to have multiple games on during the week. And I think at one point it'll probably get there because it just expands the business platform. I think there'll be something maybe five, 10 years from now where it's like, oh, wait, we have Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday game. Like, I just don't think the NFL is ever going to care because in the past it was, oh, you can't have Friday games because of high school football. You can't have Thursday because that's good. I just don't know that those guys are ever going to care. And I don't know that anybody running any of these businesses is going to worry about things other than growing their um, I mean, it's easy to say the bottom dollar, but just, okay, what's, what's our market share? I mean, Goodell's entire salary is based on, hey, revenues will be at this number. Here are these projections. So for baseball, it's been, okay, how do you hang on to this national audience? They're in big time trouble, but they yep. know they still have the local, the regional stuff. When you dig into all those numbers, you're like, okay, maybe this is who we are. And then we have our playoff moment. And for college basketball, who, you know, I used to split up the week on my NBA and my college viewing. And now with just how my career has gone, I just don't really have the time to do both. And then I catch back up with college for two months prior to the draft, which is weird. But to own the tournament, to own those three weeks, at least they have that. And I think post of everything that happened in the last year, that's what it felt like again, especially being on the West Coast now for the first time with the tournament where you're like, wait, the games are on when? And it's just it's 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 usually those first four games are my favorite time of the sports year. But uh, this was just a, just a reminder how awesome the whole thing can be because of, you know, look at look at last night with with Gonzaga. And you're like, how the hell is UCLA in the playing game playing potentially for the national championship? Right. And came, you know, 3.3 seconds left. It just felt like it was coming to double overtime. I, the defender 
it's funny because you don't want to commit the foul on the forty point on the forty foot heave, right? But yeah. on the other <laughs> hand, on the other hand, it felt like you know they're so paralyzed that the worst case scenario of all time would be I fouled this guy. But he did kind of give him a free look, right? There, there was a middle ground where he could have gotten in his way a tiny bit more. I felt like the when Suggs let that go, he was trying to bank it, and he felt like it was going in. Everything that he did with his reaction, the other thing that was interesting, I, I loved him before this game, um, and I'm ready to have the Kate Cunningham versus Suggs argument with you now. Go but, ahead. Um, Let's do it. But what I loved was when Juzai makes the, the follow-up to tie it, and Suggs is just kind of moving. And it's the way he moves just in general, but especially in that moment, is just a guy who's always been awesome at sports his whole life, right? There was no, he's not painted glancing at the scoreboard, anything. He's He was at the top of the key when the ball goes in. He drifts over. He knows what he's going to do. He gets it. Like, he already had his plan. He knew pretty much exactly where he was going to shoot it from. And I just think that guy's special. I The way, his two-way ability... Um, his competitiveness. I know he's like either third or fourth in these uh, mock drafts. And I know by the time we get to the draft, he'll be third or fourth, maybe fifth. But that guy to me is a lock. Um, what he does on both ends, that is going to translate. That The worst case scenario to me is like he's another Halliburton type where it's just like an awesome guy to have on your team. Maybe he's not spectacular, but can do everything. Doesn't necessarily need the ball to have an impact. And you kind of want him out there when it matters. And, you know, he had the block too last night. I just love watching him. The block and then pass in transition was awesome. one of the best plays of the entire tournament. I mean, the idea of freshman is going to do that. And yeah, you could debate maybe it was a foul on one of the replays um, and then touching the net. But just in the moment, the recovery to make the play, contain the basketball, and then immediately out on the break and then see all that stuff. He impacts the game. In a way, you know, it's funny because we spent so much time talking about scoring. It's never been easier to score in the NBA. There's all sorts of guys certain nights who are like, what the hell's going on here? You're like, how many shots is this guy taking a game? And whenever you're looking at guys in the league succeeding, I, I just think that it's more misleading than ever before. Being like, oh, no, that guy's pretty good. And you're like, is he or is he just scoring a lot? And yeah. Suggs is the antithesis of that because he's going to get buckets just because of his energy and his understanding. But He's impacting games in ways that are winning ways. And that's what I think is the sales job on Suggs. If you're in a front office and you're sitting there and you're debating all these guys, that's the sales job. The problem I'd have with this, I would say to you, I'm still Cunningham over Suggs, still have yep. much more work to do on it because I think offensively Suggs appears, you know, even as a freshman, more limited than what Cunningham could be. And that's why I think Cunningham still wins the argument and then, of course, the size. Yeah, the thing with Suggs, and you saw it a couple of times even last night, you know, if somebody's draped all over him, it is a little bit hard for him to create a shot. But I do think he's such a good athlete. KOC had this in his draft guide. KOC only did the top 15. And I know he's got another thing coming, and I'm sure Mitchell's brother is going to be there. There's going to be some tweaks. But he mentioned in that draft guide, like, the two ways for Suggs to go up a level in the pros, which seemed conceivable, are the three-point shooting just getting better, which I, I think... I don't want to pencil it in, but I think it's really likely that he will become a better and better three-point shooter over the next five, six years. And then some of that Steve Nash footwork stuff, you know, can he be a guy because he's such a good athlete? Can he be a guy that becomes a shoot off different feet, you know, off balance in traffic floaters? Can he add that stuff to his game the same way when you, when you see like how good Lillard has gotten at some of this quirky stuff to just being a great scorer as a point guard, as a little guy. 
the stuff he's added to his game year after year after year compared to where he was when he came in the league, I, I think like it's just unbelievable to me. Like he has figured out a way to navigate tall guys all the time. Suggs has more size than him. And I think he's he's a bigger dude than him. And I, I just, my bet would be on Suggs. I think he's so competitive that whatever holes we're seeing now, I just think he'll add to them every year. And that's why I think this is such a tough one because I get it with Cunningham, six foot eight. He's, we talked about him a couple weeks ago. He's going to be a 40% three-point shooter. He might be a spectacular three-point shooter. And you talk about that kind of size who can run a team, can shoot threes. You don't want that to come back to haunt you. But I do think there's a potential that Suggs becomes the best guy in this draft. I would, you know, look, it's not like I talked to every team because um, I was working on something for my podcast where, you know, I'd had some front office people in, in different levels, whether it's the NBA advanced guys, you know, that just scout NBA or, you know, in college and we were doing some different things and it's just kind of hard to get all that information as often as I wanted to, to the audience. But I had been working on something where I'd say five or six teams have chimed in and it's pretty consistent that it's a five person tier draft, unless you think Cunningham and then, is and so then like good. a major and a major drop after five, right? People are like, if you're six, you're kind of fucked. Um, I think it's just because there's less certainty of the order. I, I don't know that I'm ready to, and again, this is, this is so before I've done all my own reports on yeah. it, which I just do to do, but like Davion Mitchell for Baylor, who I can't wait to watch matched up in this game. Um, he single-handedly turned that Villanova game with balls. Mm. You know, he just went, hey, you know what? Like, I know some guys may shoot it better than me. And by the way, the way Davion can get to the cup and finish on either side, but he's 22, he's a junior, but his three-point shooting has gone from like 28% at Auburn and then mid-30s to mid-40s now. And there's that Suggs factor of, hey, I know how we fall in love with the 6'9", 6'10 guys and the good stroke, but like, why are you invisible again in a big moment? Now, some of the times it's just straight up age. And you're like, look, he's so young and we're drafting your upside. You can get it. If there was one way to do it right, then everybody would do it right. and We'd have less mistakes. But there isn't. Yep. But the pro Mitchell and Sugg stuff that I think I'm not going to sit here and tell you you're wrong on is that hey, there's stuff going on with these guys where there's an edge to them where I know it fucking matters. And I know that some of the biggest mistakes that I've made is that you fall in love with the measurables and some of the stuff. And that's where those solo workouts screw up everybody where you're like, man, this guy is unbelievably talented, but you're like, okay, but where's, where's that edge? And if you're arguing for Suggs in the room, you don't have to convince anybody because they've already seen it all year long. But it has been Cunningham one, Mobley from USC, probably two. Some people look Who's, at Jalen Green's athleticism, you know, one of the two G League kids and Kaminga who, you know, other people will say, no, he might be the guy. Suggs is generally behind most of them. I'm not saying that every, you know, there might be a team, there's probably a team that looks at Suggs as, as two or whatever, but Suggs has been closer to five of the teams that I've talked to than he's been closer to one. Mm. Did you see the football stuff with him? I didn't know about this. He the looked Mr. unbelievable. Minnesota. Yeah. <laughs> they, I saw somebody sent me some clip of like some of his best high school. He was Mr. Minnesota, but it's like, oh, so you've always been the best Athlete. Yeah, like at every point of your life. Oh, you're one of those guys. I do wonder, like, you know, I think uh, Edwards is like that, too. The guy Minnesota took the number one, Anthony Edwards, where he was just this amazing athlete who just eventually settled on basketball. But sometimes, you know, I, I do think when you think about worst case scenarios for players, like for Suggs, it's like he's such a good athlete. He's so competitive. And I do think he just makes winning plays that if he falls to five, I'm happy. Whoever is five. And that could be like OKC, like that they could put him and SGA together. Um, 
I don't know if I'd want to mess up OKC's rhythm right now. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, taking shots away from Poku. Um, Juzang was the other one who I know he's right-handed and Katino Mobley is left-handed or was left-handed, but reminded me of Katino Mobley. He was like right-handed, like his game where he had this kind of this this kind of freaky release on his three that teams were always kind of surprised when he was taking it. And then his ability to go into traffic over and over again with these little like fling shots, runners, stuff like that. He wasn't even in KOC's top 15. I wonder if he played himself uh, into at least the top half of the first round because that did clutch buckets, all that stuff. On the other hand, we've been seduced by March Madness guys like that before, but I loved everything I saw from him in this tournament. Well, he had both. He had NBA level shots, you know, dribble, stop, turn around, fade away. And, and actually it like looks good. Not just, Hey, I'm going to take a turnaround fade away because it looks cool. And I never make them. He was yes. making them. And then that corner three late and he answered because, you know, that felt like an NBA game. It felt it like did. an NBA playoff game because it was more about all right, here our best guy is going to go at your guy, and we're going to see what happens. Now Gonzaga really had more options um, than than UCLA does, and that's why Gonzaga has been so much fun to watch because it feels like different. I mean, Kispert wasn't even that great towards the end. I think he missed like four shots in his last few possessions. He got touches. They felt like they went away from him a little bit. But you know, Juzang came over from Kentucky. He was a freshman who didn't play a ton, didn't shoot it well. Calipari was like, look, we had other guys ahead of him. And then, you know, his his reason for transferring, I mean, you think of it, you're a freshman, you're at Kentucky, you're from California, and COVID hits, and you're like, you know what, I just want to be closer to home um, and get a few more looks. I don't think it's hard to understand why he would want to bounce and move on from there. But, you know, the rest of the lottery, whether it's Kispert, the kid from Tennessee, um, you know, the, the Moody kid from Arkansas who didn't really have a great tournament, who just felt like he was invisible at times, but I don't know that it's such a drop-off. I just think that that whole group is far out of order in comparison to the top five. It seems pretty consistent when you talk to teams. I loved having UCLA in the mix. You know, I, li- I, I like having at least one longtime impact program that has generations of fans. I personally know a few UCLA fans, and this team snuck up on all of them. And then it was one of the all-time kicked-in-the-crotch losses at the end where, where he misses rebound oh he made it oh we're going to double oh wow that went in but it was interesting you know i actually went on twitter i don't go on twitter that much anymore but i did go on to see what some of the reactions were and predictably it was like greatest game of all time all that stuff i do feel like these games happen in the 80s and 90s pretty much every year and part of it was you know part of what made last night special and what barkley and those guys were talking about after was there was like real shot making You know, there was a high level of basketball that this looked like NBA basketball, but condensed in a college, kind of all the things we love about college, but with the NBA shot making. And this is kind of why we love college basketball and revered it so much in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, for whatever reason, it was able to to get captured last night. But I mean, I wrote down, I I made a list of just like 12 games off the top of my head that were awesome. The recency bias with some of this stuff is nuts. I think this game now deserves to be remembered along with those other ones. But to say like greatest ever, what are, like I, I'm just going to always rebel against that. But I do think like, was it one of the 15 best college basketball games I ever saw? Like it might've been. Yeah, I think top 15, it's probably safe, but best of all time. I mean, look, we're, I mean, that, that Chris Jenkins Villanova game was off the charts. I mean, that was, 
and that was for the title. And if you watch NC State Houston, I remember my father doing some work in a, in a house that he was building and he jumped off the ladder. Like he jumped off the ladder freaking out like while, while that happened. Um, you know, the Villanova-Georgetown game isn't, doesn't have the moment necessarily that some of these other games that we're talking about, but that upset is unbelievable that that ever happened. So look, recency bias is not new. You could argue my entire career was started by a recency bias segment. I was solo on radio 2008, I think. And we'd had a stretch of about 16 months in sports where I'd heard like it was the greatest Super Bowl, greatest NBA finals game, greatest golf tournament major finish ever. And I just went through them all. I was like, there's no way we're this lucky. There's no way we're this lucky that we've had 15 of the greatest moments ever in like a 16 month stretch. So, um, I don't, I, look, I don't know if I'm comfortable saying that's the best college basketball game, ever, but you know what I think it's great for? Because college basketball is really struggling, whether it's the transfers, whether it's guys leaving early, although that's not necessarily new. I mean, guys have been leaving early for a long time, but I think there's also such an anti-NCA thing, which is their own fault. So I'm certainly not sitting here sticking up for the NCA. There's, there's just a vibe around college athletics that's far more critical, more aware, um, and at times accurate but just overall more negative. And it's completely off the radar until the tournament starts. So at least for the tournament in the college basketball side of the NCAA to say, hey, we've got, we've got two products here with a men's and women's tournament where we had a million of these moments where you know it's better than nothing. If we're capturing the American audience here for a couple days and with big moments like this, that's far better than those downtimes where it feels like we're competing with football and nobody knows that we're even 20 games into the season. I wrote down a list. The best game I ever saw in my life was 92 Duke, Kentucky. I remember where I watched it. It was an incredibly high level of play. There were great players in the game. It was unbelievably dramatic. It still holds up. But 91 Duke UNLV was amazing. Duke UNLV, I, that was I, regret, an amazing not, game. I regret not saying it off the top because when you want to talk storylines in the perfect Hollywood script going into something in my lifetime, I don't know that anything tops that. And it's funny because people eventually turned on Duke, but at the time there was a little Cinderella story. I still hate it. There were a lot of people that were into it. Uh, NC State Houston, Nova Georgetown, the the Indiana-Syracuse game, Keith Smart. Arizona-Kentucky in 97 was awesome. And I think has gotten a lot. That was the game that I think people like me were like, Miles Simon, Pencilman, 15 years. (laughs) 15-year uh, NBA career. It's going to happen. I um, didn't like him out of the draft. I had an early report uh, on him. Well, yeah, We yeah. would argue about it in Boston. Kansas-Memphis was awesome. Michigan-Seton Hall was awesome. UNC-Georgetown in 82, the Jordan game. Um, you mentioned the Jenkins game. Duke-Butler 2010. And then Kansas-Oklahoma, the Danny Manning game. I, that would be my That would be kind of my short list. And what's interesting about it is Duke-Butler was 2010. The Jenkins game was 16. This is really, those were the only two from the last 12 years, uh, counting last night. And that goes to your point of like college basketball kind of needed this because I, I, you know, we'll, we'll talk about after the break. There's some, there's some other bigger picture issues going on with college basketball. And I don't know if it's going to make it better or worse, but, um, but yeah, last night was amazing. Let's take a quick break. And then I want to come back and talk about the rest of this. This episode is brought to you by Nissan. Get ready to level up your adventures with the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder built to navigate you to some of Earth's most awe-inspiring spots with seven drive modes with all the power you need. 
Get the thrill of the drive in every moment of your journey with the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. This episode is brought to you by Uber Eats. Spring is here and you can now get almost anything you need for your sunny days delivered with Uber Eats. What do we mean by almost? Well, you can't get a well-groomed lawn delivered, but you can get chicken parmesan delivered. A cabana, that's a no, but a banana, that's a yes. A nice tan, sorry, no, but a box fan, happily, yes. A day of sunshine, nope. A box of fine wines, yeah. Uber Eats can definitely get you that. Get almost, almost anything delivered with Uber Eats. Order now. Alcohol in select markets, product availability may vary by region. See app for details. So they're changing this transfer rule and it's going to make college basketball free for all. And there's been a lot of talk about it this week. There's apparently over a thousand people are potentially my transfer. And people are saying it was one of the reasons Roy Williams decided that he wanted to step down. Who knows? And the, you know, it could go one of two ways. There's the one side that's like, this is great. The players should have the ability to control their own destiny. And then there's the other side who's like, this is going to ruin college basketball. Now, how do you coach a freshman? What if you recruit this guy? He doesn't get quite enough minutes. He just, he just skips town, goes to the next team. I, I've been pretty, pretty uh, set on this one for the last 25, however long I've had a platform. I never understood why the coaches could switch teams and the players couldn't. And nobody was ever able to come up with a good answer, a good counter on that one that a Syracuse guy, like Jim Beheim, could be the Syracuse coach and be like, cool, I'm going to now coach Kentucky. I'll see you guys later. But if the players, the players basically had to stay an extra year before they left. And that just never made sense to me. So fundamentally, I actually like this transfer rule thing. I like that you can only do it once. And I think it's going to actually make the sport more interesting. And it's, and it's an interesting opportunity for my school, Holy Cross, and these kind of fringe schools that don't really have a chance to ever get somebody. But now maybe they can grab the disgruntled seventh man on Duke and make them the focal point. So I actually kind of like it. On the other hand, it feels like college basketball is now a snow globe that we're just shaking. And it's just complete chaos. The snowflakes settle. It'll be a five-month season. Everything will be different. That'll end. Next season, everything will be different again. And I can see why some people are frightened by it. But I personally like it. What do you think? I really don't think it's any going to make it that much different. This is basically just making legal what's already being done. Um if you look at the transfer portal numbers over the last few years, they're absurd. And most guys, if you find the right lawyer or you make the right argument that the NCAA does not want to argue against publicly, you get the the wait period just basically um, they waive it anyway. So yeah. I don't think it's going to be the free-for-all that everybody expects it to be because it's already kind of a free-for-all. I have no problem with the transfer rule. I think when I was younger, I was kind of, maybe I was just more in line. Maybe I was more of a company guy where I was like, yeah, mm. you know, when you're younger, guess what? The guy in charge has um, options that you don't have. But as soon as you start going down that road, you're like, yeah, that guy gets paid and then this guy doesn't. All right. And I'm convinced that the NCAA is just like, look, we're going to put this off as long as we possibly can. We probably should figure out a way to pay the revenue generating players. I would not argue for non-revenue generating players to make any money. Um, so good luck figuring that one out. 
But yeah, the NCA just is like, look, everybody hates us no matter what we do. I remember I was on Get Up once, Bill, and it nice. was me, Jalen, and Greeny. Yeah, it was good. We cleared 300,000 viewers on that episode. There was a place that kept track of it. <laughs> and so we we were on and they had a new thing where it was basically like, hey, if you go into the draft and then now you come out, you're still going to be eligible because college basketball forever was being controlled by these coaches that, of course, they were voting against anything that made their job tougher. All right. Let's yeah. face it. You make a lot of money. It isn't the great. It's a tough job. All right. And it's really tough to get to that point. But I mean, it wasn't surprising that people were voting for stuff in, in their own self-interest. And they used to have these absurd rules where the NBA withdrawal draft date was a different date than the college one. And the college one was like, we need you back a month before the NBA one. And the NBA is like, whatever, we're just doing this differently. So then college was like, hey, look, we can make this a little bit better where if a guy doesn't land somewhere and he hasn't done some of these things, that he can come back. So I remember being on the show going, hey, this is actually pretty good. And you would have thought that I was arguing that players should have to pay for their own flights to games. Like Jalen <laughs> right. was looking at me being like, how can you say that this is good? I was like, do you agree that the thing before was bad and now this is better? And Greeny's like, well, you know, Jay Billis said, and I'm like, look, Jay Billis is amazing, but he fucking hypnotizes all of you guys to the point where like, you can't ever even admit that something that the NCAA did actually was like maybe good. And Greeny got pissed at me on the show. And it was hilarious because the producer's like, I've never seen Greeny get pissed, like literally in the face, wow. pissed off at another person on the show. Like he did. He got so frustrated with you. He was mad at you. And I've never seen him do that in like 20 years. And I was laughing. I know. I felt great. And they were like, we're going to, hey, can you come back tomorrow? And so I was like, guys, they did something that you think is better. And you're still, you turned it into something else that you don't like about them. So I understand what you're saying. I think what they're doing is reclassifying something that's already been happening pretty, pretty extensively. And people hate the NCAA, I think, as much as anything in sports. Anything. Goodell used to have the title. I don't know if, if he kept track of the championship belt. This would be a good video breakout. The championship belt of just the single most hated thing for sports fans. I think Goodell Whoop. had it for like three years. And, but the NCAA has had it intermittent. The NCAA is like basically when Hulk Hogan would have the WWE title, then he wouldn't have it. Then we get it back again. They're, they're, they're always going to be a contender for it. And they represent a lot of things that people just fundamentally hate. And the whole thing about students should get play, paid to play basketball, all that stuff, play football, they're getting taken advantage of. That's just a thing online that you can't even argue. By the way, I agree they probably should get something, but I think people make it seem like it's a lot easier than maybe it, you know, that it actually would be in practicality where you're paying how many, how many football scholarships are there? Like 75 per more than that. More than yeah, that. 80. Right. I don't, I mean, how you'd figure this out, I have no idea. But yeah, whatever. Um, people hate the NCAA. I think what's interesting is that. Women's college basketball, I think people really like, and I think people root for, and there's a positivity toward it in a lot of different ways that um, I think has been one of the reasons the profile's risen. I also think like going to Friday and Sundays, kind of bookending the two um, Saturday, Monday, I forget when they switched that. I don't feel like that was something that was happening like when I was in college. That, that switched at some point in the 90s, maybe, when they were basically like, we want to own this Friday night. We want to own this Sunday. And now it does feel like it's like this four day event of both sports and it, and it works. So back to the paying though, as you said, it, it's, it's certainly really complicated because there's, I'm not an NCAA anarchist. You know, I think that there's still value in, in a scholarship for most of the guys. 
There's value in name, education. It's fucking yeah, expensive. This name, image, and likeness thing is long overdue, and it's been incredibly stupid. I've read stuff that is like vomit-inducing, so so biased that I'm like, you're not even making any sense. Like I remember reading one, the, the ultimate one that I always go back to is they were like, well, Texas makes this much for the football team, so that means that every player should make $500,000. And you're like, no, I, the third string guard should not make $500,000. Like the school should not be ch- cutting him a check. But when I look at the buyout stuff and the amount of money that college football wastes on coaches oh and God. then waste on buyouts, and then people try to argue there's no money, it's like, yeah, because you guys are spending it all. You're spending mm. it in ways that you've never spent it before. And that's like one of the biggest issues I think we should all have with different people that are in charge. It's yeah, you can tell me you having more money and more resources is going to solve all sorts of things. But ultimately, what it usually leads to is you just spend more. Why is tuition up all over the place? Why have the tuition spikes been like on fire, like the real estate market before the bubble in the early 2000s? It's because they've hired more administrators everywhere. Like, look at some of the numbers on tuition prices and then go, okay, but how many people are being staffed at some of these universities? And you're like, okay, so you're just like tuition is up because it's up, but it's also up because you're like, hey, let's hire more people. And then we can say we're awesome and we have all these people. So like you just started creating stuff. And the same thing is happening with college sports where it's like, oh, shit, this guy's buyout's 25 million. Well, I don't know. The TV deal's been pretty good. And, you know, we get a couple boosters to kick in, too. And they'll write a check and the whole deal. So it's like, oh, yeah. But hey, by the way, we're out of money again. <laughs> you're like, well, because, right. because you guys spend it on everything else. Like, hey, here's a football program. We've got a slide. We've got a barbershop. Man, check out this new Dolby 5.1. I'm kidding. That's old school surround sound. People know what I'm talking about. And you just go, all right, so you guys are just going to spend all the money to say that you're broke. So, you know. Look. It's like the yeah. summer of 2016 NBA cap spike. Say the cap's up. Got We got to spend it. Uh, Evan Turner, 70 million. Evan Turner, 15 million. No, oh, that's high. 20 million. All right, so we got Gonzaga Baylor in the uh, title game. Gonzaga's trying to go undefeated. And I could feel this being a sports TV topic. Did Gonzaga's undefeated season, does it have an asterisk because it was a COVID season? Which I'm sure it'll have like a tiny bit of an asterisk. But at the same time, I do feel like this was a really memorable college basketball team that I enjoyed. And I think multiple guys from the team will go on to have at least some sort of professional identity. I think Baylor is a really good counterpart for them. You said, I mean, on your podcast a bunch of times, this was the game everybody's wanted for how many months now? So what happens? What do you think? As much as I love what Baylor can do, um, whether it's running their offense or just having four guys that can beat you off the dribble. I mean, even Joe Dirt there can handle a little bit. Um, and Davion has that NBA gene of, okay, shot clock late. All right, I'm going to back it up. I'm going to go at you again. And Davion has this crazy thing where he he finishes in a way at the rim. It, no one's Kyrie. No one, I don't think he'll ever be Kyrie. But he has a way of finishing in, in the area. The release of the ball to the rim is where you're not expecting it to be. And he'll get off on the wrong foot. He's got just the way some of these guards now throw it high off the glass and these angles that you wouldn't even think of taking the shots 20 years ago. He's great with all that stuff. But I've just... I love that Gonzaga can go to Timmy in the post and he can finish with either hand when he needs to. Um, Kispert can hurt you. He's probably the best shooter in the entire tournament. Hasn't necessarily worked out that way stat-wise, but he's been awesome all season long. And then you got the backcourt, like three guards with Gonzaga that can all kind of do their own thing at times. So, you know, nothing crazy there. But uh, I like I like the Zags, even though I'm incredibly impressed by Baylor. 
I like the Zags. I was surprised by the uh, line being only four and a half on Fanduel. I thought it would be like seven, seven out, something like that. I think there's a lot of respect for Baylor. Can I ask you, what NBA player does Kispert remind you of? Um, I don't want to say because this is just going to get turned into something stupid, and I'm so whatever. Welcome, welcome to the party. It reminds me a little of a Clayish thing when Clay was in college. You know, because mm. remember, go back, like Clay was like, oh, you know who's already, you know who's the good shooters? That Clay Thompson kid. Um, he's Kispert's huge. He's a good enough athlete. He's he's not gonna be the individual defender Clay is, but he's a good team defender. Um, but his release is quick. And the only reason I bring it up because I hate comps, I hate him. I love But he's him. a he's a limited dribble efficient offensive player. Where Clay, remember in the beginning, you were like, everything of his offensively is usually set up by somebody else, and then he finishes it with the shot. Then Clay figured out how to handle and get his own and could do all sorts of things. I just think there's something there between doesn't have to dribble very much and can hurt you because he can pull up so quickly. So there you go. How about Timmy? Um, reminds me of like a smaller pit snoggle <laughs> without the range. And you like you think Mitchell ends up in the top ten? Yeah, I do. But you know he's older; he'll be twenty three at the start of the NBA season. I mean, he's like oh, I don't know, little Wesley Wesley Johnsonitis. <laughs> he's got he's got a little bit more, a uh, little bit more. Remember that Wesley Johnson was like he's twenty. The only negative he's twenty three right now as we're, as he's being drafted. It's like ah, oh, that seems like kind of a red flag. But then you know what I love Lillard, though is Lillard was twenty two when he got drafted, and that was fun. I always love the age thing where, like, if a guy who's older actually does all right, and then guys will be like, you know, I don't understand this. Like, what, you know, you know what you've got in this guy. He's been around, he's more mature, he understands these things. And, you know, it's, it, why don't you take him? And you're like, oh, you want to go over all the other guys that were old that didn't work out? Right. <laughs> you know? So, yeah, I mean, look, it's not, it's not, he's 22 right now. So I'm rounding up, but I just, you know, his draft age will be 22, it'll be 23 when the season starts. Um, let's go to, uh, what's audible to the NBA. I have a fun topic for you. Somebody's going to have to win the rookie of the year award. They have to hand it out. I checked. They've had one every year. They haven't, they haven't said pass. And, uh, <laughs> right now Edwards is the favorite at, uh, at, on Fando. He's minus 110. I think there's a case that he could be the worst this could be the worst rookie of the year season anyone's had if he ends up winning, unless he picks it up, just because his team is horrific. His stats aren't even that good. He's scoring 17 a game, four rebounds, three assists. He's a 39% shooter. He shoots 31% from three. His PR is 11.9. His team is 12 and 37 heading into Sunday's games. And for some reason, he's the favorite. Hal Burton is the number two. He's 13, three and five. He's almost a 50, 40, 90 guy percentage wise, 48, 42, 87. He's playing 30 minutes a game, 16.8 PRs, teams 22 and 28. I test Halliburton is the best rookie I've seen this year. I kind of can't believe Edwards is the favorite, but I think it speaks to this weird generation we're in now with like NFT one for one video clips and dunks on Twitter and 2K and how. They kind of all conspire and like, oh, Anthony Edwards had 38 points the other night. Nobody realizes he took 32 shots. This this kind of culture we have now where I'm not positive people are actually watching basketball. I don't understand how anyone could watch basketball 
and think Edwards is a better rookie this season than Tyrese Halliburton. I don't get it. It's confusing to me. Halliburton's a winning player like we talked about with Suggs. I know it's going to come around. I know he's going to end up winning the rookie of the year, but I, I'm kind of appalled that Edwards is the favorite. What's your take? I'm convinced no one watches anything after I listen to people talk about the buyout nets for about a week, which I know we're going to get to a little bit later. Um, as we've talked about on this podcast, and I've done some of my own, when you take somebody like Edwards one, and you're not sure, right? Because you only got that one year at Georgia, the team stunk. He took a million bad shots, but he physically was doing some things. And he can do some things physically on drives where it doesn't even look like he's trying. And he's got the angle and the size and the quickness. And he can kind of... He was doing some stuff that actually, as we were talking about Davion Mitchell, like he had some, I watched that full Philly, Minnesota game last night, and he really has these moments where you're like, there's really not much you can do with this guy. So those are all positives, and it's great, right? Yeah, I agree. And the dunks, the night he had that sick dunk against um, the Raptors, and you know, then people were mad when people were pointing out that he was having another awful shooting night. I'm like, hey, I don't want to be that guy. That dunk was incredible. That's not what the moment was about. Uh, I don't care about the rest of the shooting stuff. But you're absolutely right, because when you're talking about Rookie of the Year, Okay, do you realize if you go like the last 15 games, I like sorting every now and then. The last 15 games, Anthony Edwards is taking the third most shots per game in the NBA. All right? (laughs) Is that true? Yeah. That's not true. And since the start of March, he's averaging 21 shots a game, which for the season would be second to only Bradley Beal. Beal leads the league in shot attempts per game at 22. Anthony Edwards from March to now has averaged about 21. And if you just by, go last by the 15. Way, I, and I don't want to turn this into an Edwards bash session. I think this is what the team wants him to do. I think they want him to win the rookie of the uh, year. I think I was some of in, his teammates would argue against that. Oh, yeah, ahead. maybe the teammates. But I remember being in Boston, Antoine Walker's rookie year, when ML Carr decided Antoine should try to win the rookie of the year, and they're playing him at center, and he was playing 43 minutes a game and hogging the ball and the whole thing. And it's like... Yeah, you can do that. You can try to win somebody the rookie of the year, but I just don't know how somebody votes for that, you know? And I, I think he's in a bad situation. I think they're asking too much from him. And they, the the whole stats versus are you a winning player or not? He's not learning anything about being a winning player on that team the way they're using him right now. And Halliburton, I know the stats aren't spectacular, but he's a winning player. He helps their team, you know? He doesn't... uh he doesn't necessarily care if he takes 20 shots. So for Halliburton to actually win the rookie of the year is going to take at least a few people like us to point out that if you're actually watching the games, he's a better basketball player at this point in his career than Anthony Edwards. And to just take a lot of shots on a team that is on pace to go 20 and 62 in an 82 game season should not be a rookie of the year. Now you could quite, you could say, all right, there's been a couple times over the years where we have given the rookie of the year, right? Michael Carter-Williams in 2014, I did not vote for him. Who did you vote for that year? Wasn't him. And, and I didn't vote for... <laughs> Very passionate about this. It, it definitely wasn't him. I think I voted for Wiggins. Was that, that, was that Wiggins or who's the next year? No, no, no. Maybe McCollum? I can't remember. I did not vote for Michael Carter-Williams because his agent called me and was mad about it. Um, 17, 6, and 6, 40... 40% free throw or field goal percentage and his team stunk, but he had the ball a lot and they were trying to get him the rookie of the year. And it's like, all right, well, I'm not going to vote for that. Brogdon won in 2017. He only averaged 10 points a game. There was no one. I mean, that was when people thought Embiid might get it with 30 games. And you were like, I don't know if you can do that. Go ahead. So that was a no one season. Tyreek Evans, um, 
put up the 25 and six for a terrible Kings team. And he won it that year. Now, at least his stats were better than Edwards' stats. The all-time no one season, though, happened in the last 20 years. Do you remember what it was? It was not Michael Carter-Williams. It was not Brogdon. I don't remember. Mike Miller won Rookie of the Year in 2001. One? 11.9 points per game on a crappy Orlando team. That was that legendary bad 2000 draft. There was just nobody, nobody had a good season. So they're like, all right, Mike Miller, you shot 40% from three. Here's your <laughs> rookie of the year trophy. So I think this is a no one season, but I do like Halliburton. I think he's played well for them. And I don't feel like that's, I feel the same way with Brogdon, where Brogdon was actually useful on that Milwaukee team. His stats weren't great, but at least he was playing like a winning player. I just feel like that's what we should do with the rookie of the year. Maybe I'm crazy. I also think the rookie of the year, I don't know that we should turn it into the same standards that we have for the MVP either. Like when I look at the MVP, that's a more important award. This award is, hey, who impressed you the most throughout the, the rookie year thing? So I don't, I don't really want to get caught up in wins and losses because then what am I supposed to do? Get really excited because you're a fucking 10 seed and, and the other team's a 14 seed in their conference and not in. So, you know, does that really make a ton of sense? I think Halliburton's been steadier. It's clear this isn't forced. I don't know that Minnesota is necessarily trying to have Anthony Edwards win the rookie of the year. When I watch Anthony Edwards now with the T-Wolves this last month, as I pointed out these stats, I see the kid that I saw at Georgia. Tons of shots, tons of bad ones, moments where he's easily the most impressive physical specimen on the court. Um, but no one ever cares about the other little things. Like in that Philly game, he had, he had two plays that stood out where I was like, okay, he doesn't get it right now. Um, they had Tobias Harris going up against Carl Anthony Towns and he turned to post him and then Anthony Edwards leaves to double where Harris has no advantage whatsoever size at that point and leaves Danny Green. Leaves Danny Green to double where Towns already had it. And then another play where Danny Green's in the corner. He leaves him the corner weak side. The ball's obviously on the other side. He goes to linger around Dwight Howard as if Dwight Howard needs to be doubled in the paint when he doesn't even have the basketball. And then Edwards completely loses Green, and then Green runs baseline and would have had an offensive rebound had the play happened a different way. Now, you can sit there and say you're young, but I'd also argue, like, what? so what, at 27, you learn to pay attention to your guy to box out? Because that seems weird. I've never heard that before. Um, there are countless, countless losing plays with, with so many of these guys. I mean, look, everybody's going to think it's because of the pre-draft thing with LaMelo, but I remember telling you on the podcast when it's like, hey, he's going to be out there screwed. I'm like, I don't know they are. They've gone five and two without LaMelo with losses to Phoenix in overtime and the Nets. So the one seed in the East, the two seed in the West, now without Hayward and, you know, and Monk, no Monk, they're screwed. They're going to start losing a million games. So they're up to the four seed and won a bunch of these games without LaMelo. I would have still voted for LaMelo for rookie of the year if he were still healthy. And maybe I still would. You know what I mean? Because I don't think the award, I, I don't know that we should get really caught up with some of the standings with some of these guys, even though for the most part, some of the high volume guys like, Edwards is going to have the best stats overall. Um, and if somebody votes for him, I don't know that I'm going to get mad about it. LaMelo is plus 210 on FanDuel. But he's he played 41 games. He's going to miss 31. And I don't... He was 16 and 6, base. 16, 6, and 6. I don't, I don't think it's going to be enough. Um, the Edwards thing brings up the question I asked you, which I can't remember if we've talked about on a podcast. How many guys in the league could score 20 points a game if they we're on a team where they got enough shots. And I said to you, I thought at least 75 guys could do it. There's, I think, 400 guys in the league. 450 plus, 480 play or something like that? I don't know. 450, so that would be about one-seventh of the league. The more I watch, I, I think it might actually be higher. I think my number might be like 85 to 90. 
I think could do it. The first time you said this, you said 100. And just classic opinion guy who's been doing this as long as we have. Like, you're just, whatever the reaction is. No, whatever, that's stupid, right? And then you're like, wait, wait. You were low at 100. I'm serious. With the this season, if you said, hey, go get 20, that number's over 100, dude. It's it's over 100. It's just about shots. Like, who's allowed to take the shots? And whenever I look at, at some of these games, like I had, I had a number the other day, Bill, because I, I always kind of keep track of it. How many guys are taking 17 or more shots per game in the NBA right now, right? There's 39 players taking 17 or more shots a game in the league this season. It was less than half of that 10 years ago. Jesus. Well, the reason this came up initially was because Jeremy Grant was averaging like 22, 23 points a game and they were, and they were running plays at the end of games where he was like their closer, basically. And people were like, wow, Jeremy Grant breakout season. And I'm watching it going, yeah, he's definitely can do a little more offensively than I expected. But I do wonder how many guys could be put in this exact spot as a swingman on a terrible Detroit team where basically somebody's got to run the offense or run it through them at the end of a game. How many guys could do that? So let's pick, let's pick a random team. By the way, let me clean up that stat. So 29 guys in the league, 29. Did I say 39? I think I might have said 39. 29 players in the league are taking 17 or more shots per game. Five years ago, it was 15. 10 years ago, 12 players averaged 17 or more shot attempts per game. This season, again, it's 29. So, yeah, I mean, if you just want to go through it, I mean, I don't I'm know. G- I'm going to give you the pacers. 30. Okay. I'll give you the pacers right now. Brogdon is averaging 21.2. Although, with the way Karis Levert, uh, you know, that must be the worst thing ever is trying to like incorporate a young dude who's thinking about the next contract who's like, I'm the big time scorer. Like, Karis is so talented, but all the stuff that worries me about him, it's all happening immediately. Where now, if you're on the Pacers, you're like, so wait, this guy's just going to take 18 fucking shots a game? <laughs> and we got to ISO him at the end of every game? Like, okay, this is fun. Go ahead. Their team chemistry is cratered. Well, Levert's another one. Sabonis. TJ Warren could do it. That's four. T- Turner could get 20 a game if you wanted to run your offense for Turner. So that's five. Could... If McDermott was on the Pistons and they were like, Doug, you're a guy yes. at the end of games, could he get to 20? I think he could too. That's six. And then I think we're done unless you have want to make a Jeremy Lamb case. I don't think it's impossible. <laughs> so I just gave you six guys on a team that is, I think, 19 and 22 and 26. Six of their guys we think could score 20 points a game if they were the focus of an NBA team. Which brings me back to my Edwards point. Yeah, he's probably going to end the season on like 18, 19 points a game, but his team's losing and they don't, it's him Beasley and Towns unless Russell comes back as scorer. So um, very, very, very bizarre rookie of the year race. All right, we're going to take a, a quick break. Come back, talk more NBA. This episode of the Bill Simmons podcast is presented by State Farm. If you ever been in an accident, and you're okay, but you know what happened? Your first reaction is going to be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car or a new anything, there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it. I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need, 
Have coverage options to protect the things you value most. File claim right on the State Farm mobile app and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. Let's talk about seeding stuff. You're excited about uh, the possibility the Lakers could fall to a six seed, but we should go through all the ramifications. Want to start there? Go. Why are you so fascinated by this Lakers thing right now? All right, this is not I'm worried about the Lakers. Uh, they look terrible against the Clippers. That's to be expected. No LeBron, no AD. The AD thing is weird because it just becomes to be like, it's it's almost like the Durant thing. We're like, hey, no timetable, no timetable. And then um, LeBron tweeted about how much he missed basketball, so that was covered. And then, um, you know, four to six weeks out on that timetable, despite people were saying, like, he might come back a little bit earlier. They They've been really good still defensively, but... It's not unrealistic that they're a six seed and they play the Clippers as a three seed in the first round. And then what? Phoenix in the second round and then Utah in in the Western Conference finals. Like, you know, the funny thing is, is that LeBron is absolutely right about the comeback against Golden State being one of the most difficult championships ever to win when you look at who Golden State was that year. No question. Then to say the, the the previous title because the bubble was the toughest, you're like, eh, I don't know about that, the opponents. But this run of opponents for a Lakers team that, you know, you still want to give the benefit of the doubt to, especially after the way they turned around after the bubble last year. But that's a pretty ridiculous run of teams you'd have to go through just to get out of the West, no? Well, right now, so I wrote these down. I don't know if we had games tonight that changes, but Utah and Phoenix seem like they're relatively locked into the one, two, unless Phoenix goes into a tailspin, which could happen. Like Chris Paul could get hurt, whatever, but Utah's 38 and 11, Phoenix 34 and 14. Clippers are 33 and 18. Lakers 31 and 19, Denver 30, 18, Portland 30, 19. That's going to be our three, four, five, six in some order. Clippers, Lakers, Denver, Portland. But Portland's only a half game behind the Lakers now. There's no sign of LeBron coming back. There's no sign of Davis coming back. And I think you're right, especially with what Gordon, I think we all were hoping Gordon could look like, you know, a rich man's Millsap in that spot. And for what we've seen so far, it's been a nice addition and it made them deeper. It gave them 30 minutes of somebody else, which I think they really needed. And I think the Lakers are going to be the sixth seed. I think this is how this plays out. Dallas is the seventh seed and Dallas is starting to come on a little bit. Two things are fascinating here for me. One is that the one seed is like incredibly important because if you're the two seed, you have to play Dallas in round one. I don't want to play Dallas. I don't want to have Luca in a series. Like, fuck that. If you're the one seed, you're playing, uh, you know, San Antonio, Memphis, Golden State, Sacramento, New Orleans, which is great. You also get to have the Lakers. Um, if you end up playing them in a playoff round, game seven's in Utah. Utah's undefeated this season, by the way, at home. Um, no, they're not. They're not undefeated. They're they lost their first two, so they've won all of. Oh, these that's games right. They, yeah. How many have they won in a row? Is it is it twenty two in a row? 20, 20, 21 in a row. Yeah, they, I think they lost their first two at home. So Phoenix, who is like, man, we're riding high. This is awesome. And then it's like, cool, we get Luca in round one <laughs> as <laughs> as a two seed, which just sucks. And then if you're the Clippers. I think I would want the Lakers in round one. I think my best chance to beat them is round one with like, you know, we're only 22, 23 games away from the playoffs right now, right? It's going to be the end of May. So we're, I don't know, six, seven weeks away. I would want to catch the Lakers 
right as like people are still getting used to each other and LeBron and Drummond have only had a couple of weeks and Davis isn't hundred percent healthy. I'd want to get them right away. Um, and then the other piece would be the four or five. It seems like we're headed for Denver, Portland again, unless Denver can jump the Clippers, but Denver, Portland, you know, would be another Epic one. So I, I don't know. I got out once you mentioned the seedings to me and I started doing the matchups, I got all fired up about it. You love, you love them. No one. Well, I love that. I think this West one's going to be really good because I think those seven teams are are really fun to watch. I think Dallas is back. I don't think Dallas is going to win the title, but I think they're they're at least to be taken seriously in a playoff round. Can we back up to something you said though? Because when you said the Clippers would want the Lakers in round one, you don't. You mean that is what's the best time to get the Lakers? Because you can't possibly argue you'd rather play the Lakers and the Trailblazers in the three six matchup if you're the Clippers, right? I'm saying I would rather, if I have to play the Lakers in round one, two, or three, I would rather play them in round one. I would rather just play Portland, and then I'll see whoever I see in the second round. Come on, dude. Think about what you're saying here. I know I know what you mean as far as the vulnerability and getting the start of the playoff, but as far as like who do we face first, and I'm the Clippers, and all that history in this city... Sign me up for Portland. Yeah, but, but what if Davis is like 85% still playing his way back? I think I'd rather take him. I disagree. Okay. You know, I, I love the show, The Challenge and MTV. <laughs> I have always, I've always been of the theory, like just, I have to go through these guys anyway. I'm throwing CT in now in the first episode, second episode. Let's just go. Let's go down to the elimination now. I'd rather get you when you're, you're just getting your legs back. You're just whatever. I'd rather play you early. If you don't know who you are yet, I don't think, I think this Lakers team is going to take a while to figure out what they are, how healthy they are, what their rotations are, things like that. Wait, so was that the, with the Miz? Yeah. He's not on it anymore. He graduated. I met, I met him. Didn't go well. Didn't go, <laughs> a lot of testosterone. No, nah, he was a prick. He was a total prick. And I was like, all right, we got it. Cool. Um, so the seedings could be, let's say San Antonio advances. Utah, San Antonio, Phoenix, Dallas, Clips, Portland, Lakers, Denver. And then you go to the East, Philly, Brooklyn, Milwaukee are the top three in some order. Then the four seed is going to be Charlotte, Miami, or Atlanta. I think Charlotte's done. I watched them against the Celts today. They've lost the Hayward thing. Hayward going out for four weeks, I think is a way bigger injury for them than LaMelo. They don't have anybody who replaces him. They ran a lot of the offense through him. He was playing really well. He's a 20 points a game guy. They don't really have a backup for him that does any of the stuff that he did for them. And now they're just a bunch of guards chucking up shots. I could see them falling all the way into the play-in. I think that's great for Miami. So then you have the Knicks, Boston, Indiana, and Chicago kind of in that waiting for any of those four teams to wake up. Who would you pick to as a as a waiting to wake up team, New York, Boston, Indiana, Indiana, or Chicago. I think Boston's probably the safest bet. They're the most talented. Uh, you know, this team is, is disappointing that win today against the Hornets means nothing. I mean, look, the Hornets had a guy in there from Nova Scotia. They had another guy I'd never heard of. I mean, you know how hard it is, how rare it is. This guy, I'm like, I don't know who that is. And he's in the game. I mean, it got so weird. Romeo Langford was playing and they took Romeo Langford out of, out of garbage time. And then Carson Edwards is like, 
he's like, I don't, I don't, I don't watch adult films. I get in, I get into 30 point games. Like, here we go. I does Carson Edwards, when you're playing pool with him and you're trying to rack the ball, like are you taking him out? Does he just start smashing the cue ball in like as you're trying to set up and you go, Carson, can you just stop for a second and let me sit, let me rack the balls and then you can hit him? Anyway, um I for Charlotte, they <laughs> They they had one twin in. They had one Martin twin in, and then he came out. The other Martin twin replaced him. I was like, oh man, it's gotten grim. They're just rotating the Martin twins. This has gotten ugly. Uh, Celtics, I, I don't I don't like them. I don't like them. But I mean, talent wise, between them and the Knicks, are you kidding? And then I wonder if there's this Knicks thing that's balancing things out because like the first half of the season, I saw a great stat somebody had that was going around where they're. The percentage of opposing threes and like uncontested threes was off the charts low. And it was just one of those things that didn't mean anything. It just, hey, people missed more open threes against you, maybe at the lowest level at anyone in the league. So look for that to balance things out. You know, I could look at projected schedule strength and all that stuff, but dude, this is going to get really ugly. I mean, I, I was looking at last Saturday. Did you watch the games last Saturday? I go, is there another all star break that I didn't know about that like select 30 guys just said, hey, we're out. We're not playing tonight. So, it even like if you start doing the playoff matchups at the end of the year, being like, "Hey, they were they were two and you know four and zero against them or whatever," I'm gonna be like, I don't know how much that's gonna matter because when did you get him? Did you get him with a bunch of games in a row? Or, you know, all these games where I feel like whoever wins the first one and then the 24 48 hour turnaround, they always lose the second one. Um, I feel that way. I may not be right about it, but that that Pacers thing that we mentioned before, I think they're having a really hard time with the Levert deal. Vooch has put up some nice numbers, but it hasn't necessarily worked for Chicago. They got their first win against the Nets, who were sitting a bunch of guys other than Kyrie. So, yeah, I think through it all, unless maybe Atlanta's the better call because other guys are making shots and, you know, they've, they've fixed their defense here a little bit. I would say Atlanta or Boston. And the only one is because of Boston's talent, despite the fact 50 games in, I don't really like watching it. The Boston thing is, is grim, but there's signs of hope that they finally have all their guys together. Time Lord's starting to play more. Fournier's starting to, I mean, you saw it today. Granted, they're playing Charlotte, but Fournier comes in, he scores 12 points in 15 minutes. Those were minutes that were being manned by Semi Ojale, Javante Green, all that stuff. He's just, he's worth a couple points a game. That trade was really important for them. There's some sort of weird energy with them that uh, I can't put my finger on where there's, a lack, we were talking a couple of weeks ago about soft and I don't even know if soft's the right word. Like there's a lack of pride in some of these games with them. But then I watch other games in league pass. It feels like we have a disproportionate amount of 20 point, 25 point blowouts, right? Last night, it felt like every game was not close. Last night was, was a special, right. You, you would have thought some kid was screwing around with .com or something. They're like, wait a minute, there's no way this team's up 40 already. Like, what the hell's going on? But that's, I actually think, as ugly as it's been at times, it's going to get uglier. I want to throw this to you, though. I was told during the Celtics' struggles without Marcus Smart, I was told by the Marcus Smart militia that this is why he deserves everything. And him coming back, I, I don't, I just would pose the question to how come everything wasn't fixed when he came back. Solid question. He's not playing well. And there's no other way to play it, to say it. So in the East, I saw an ad today watching uh, the terrible Clippers Lakers. Poor ABC has gotten hammered on these Sunday games. The uh, Clippers Lakers, they ran an ad for the playing games, which are May 18th. It's April 4th. That's less than six weeks away. I got excited. 
playing games. It's going to be unbelievable. You know, you think like, say in the East, where we could have like Boston could be the seventh seed. It could be like Boston, New York, Chicago, Indy, something like that. They're teams that like, I like watching Chicago. Chicago's in a playing game. I would be excited. I like their nine. I've enjoyed Patrick Williams. I like seeing Vooch, the early returns. Seeing my old friend, Daniel Tice, who drove me crazy. Now he's on another team. I get to root for him. But um, I don't know. I'm going to enjoy the playing games. The West is a little more grim because other than New Orleans, when you get into that San Antonio, Memphis, Golden State, Golden State looks like they might go sideways. Would they lose by like 50, 53 the other night or 63? Yeah. They were down 60 something and they lost by 53, I think. And then you have New Orleans at 21 and 27, who is probably the worst coach team in the league, all things considered, out of all the teams that are actually talented, that do dumb shit over and over again. And yet their best guy is averaging 62% from field goals and is completely unstoppable. And I just would not want to play him in a playing game. I'm sorry. If they're the 10th seed, I'd be bummed out. I'm, you know, you're Dallas. You're like, cool. We'll get in there. We'll get the seventh seed. We'll play Phoenix. And then it's like, well, wait a second. You've got to play this team that their best guy makes 62% of his shots or you have to foul. That's going to be your opponent for the playing game. Good luck. What if it's JJ Reddick revenge game? If the Pelicans get that seven ten, <laughs> uh, here's the thing though. I would if I played the Pelicans in the playing game. I would if I coached Dallas. If I were Rick Carlisle, I would just tell one of the guys. I'm like every time Brandon Ingram, you are on Ingram, be like, man, they don't run enough shit for you. <laughs> they gotta get you the ball more. Like I can't believe all this Zion stuff. Like you're better than he is, right? And then just be like, this is going to be perfect. But honestly, I don't, I, I think Dallas is, I'm with you. You're not picking Dallas to come out of the West. You're just saying, hey, the early stuff and, and feeling better about him and having a few more options. Although it just feels out of central casting. They're like, hey, can we add one more really long kind of white guy that's a perimeter dude? Be like, yeah, we can. <laughs> like, sick. Melly's one of those dudes. He's like an actor who's just been in a series of terrible movies, but you kind of wanted him to see in the see him in this movie where he's basically Maxi Cleaver standing. So going so, to stand in Maxi's spot. So it's the Joey Pants Award, right? So I was watching The Fugitive on a flight the other day, and you know, they show up to the train scene where people didn't realize, like, hey, this Tommy Lee Jones performance. Get used to it because you're going to see this one for about 20 years now. Not that he wasn't amazing when he did some other things, but he had just nailed it. We're like, all right, you were so good at the train scene. We're putting you in front of a volcano. But Joey Pants gets out of the thing and he's like, it's a circus. <laughs> <laughs> I immediately thought of you. Do you think of Melly? Yeah, because I think you could call it the Melly Award. But I don't want to change your it's your it's your show. Rewatches was yours. I just get an invite. So I appreciate it. I don't want to step on anybody's toes. Let me give you let me give you uh three teams and you tell me if they're better off just throwing away these last 20 games and going for a top 10 pick. Not that they will, because I think the playing game has properly incentivized a lot of these teams. Um Indiana. Are they better off just saying, yeah, this season sucked. TJ Warren got hurt. We had this weird old depot situation. 
we we kind of outsmarted ourselves. We brought Levert in. He's a terrible fit with what we have. And maybe we just punt on this season. I know they won't. I know they can't. They have healthy guys. That's not like they can. But I'm just saying in a, in a perfect world, if you're the Pacers, do you really care if you make the playing game? I'm probably going to say no to almost all these, so I don't want to ruin your segment. So I, maybe I should just just pass it right back to you on it. But I'll only answer the Pacers one with, I kind of like what the roster could be. So I would rather not be in the playing game and get like lucky in the lottery because I don't know that you're going to be sniffing in the top of the lottery anytime soon. Because I do like the team when it's normal. And yeah, it could be too many guys. And it looks like there's times where Brogdon is like, what are we doing here? And I know he's, he's missed some games. I don't know how many off the top of my head here. And even Thomas has probably looked at the Levert thing being like, you know, we had some, we had some nice rhythm here offensively. But at least Levert is still talented and maybe a piece and the way the contract and the control. So I'm not necessarily like, I know I've sounded anti-Levert here, but let me go back to you. Why don't you make the argument for it? Because I just think there's so many times with young teams are like, oh, that playoff experience, it's so valuable. You're like, really? Getting your, your ass kicked in a 1-8? You're just going to grow from that emotionally? I, I don't know that that's really true. For the Pacers, I would be, I would want to be in the playing game and I would talk myself into a reality of these guys just need to gel. Okay. We have talent. Brogdon and Sabonis are good. Fuck it. Let's see what happens. The next team, though, Toronto. To me, that's a punt. That's one where you go to Lowry and you go, hey, man, big free agency coming up for you. Last big contract. There's a lot of money out there. Um, this might be our best chance to get like a top eight pick. I know your knee's bothering you. I know your foot's, whatever, whatever's bothering you. I know, I know something on your body's bothering you. Let's just call it quits. I know they won't do this because Nick Nurse has already come out and he has said, I want to make the playoffs. We are not tanking. I hate tanking. I'm just saying in the perfect world, if you're a Raptors fan, where are you going with this team? Yeah, maybe Nowhere. you could win a playing game, but you're not winning a round one. You're, you're, you're so close to actually being able to get a top eight pick and you can write this. This year's a write-off. This year's a sunk cost. You had the Tampa thing. You had to, your two big guys leave. It's a write-off. I know they can't do it because, you know, it's basketball. But to me, that's the team that should be thinking about how to weasel out of this. I would agree. Um, I'm going to agree on almost all these. I think the only time that you're going to hear an argument against it would be so Atlanta makes it. Now, they're the six. You know, what if they hit a rough, spat, rough patch again here and they're in the playing game and whatever? There's no version of them tanking or anything like that. But you could see them saying, us being able to come out of this year as a playoff team means something. And I think right I now, think Atlanta has to go for it. Right, right. And they they are. So I mean, I'm just I'm simply saying of any of these teams, this is the this is the group that you make the argument for. I think Chicago feels like, hey, another year with Levine. We made the Vooch trade. We want to be able to say we're a playoff team. Now I think these are these are short-term wins that can be really overstated and in the big picture don't really mean anything. Like just because you got in and you snuck in, it doesn't mean you always grow, all right? You know, some people get a... Remember when Detroit made it and they had that 1-8 matchup with Cleveland and it was like, you know what? Look out for Detroit next year. Stanley Johnson, you see what he did against LeBron? And you're like, didn't they get swept? I mean, like, you know, like what... Did they really... You know what I mean? Like, I think we overstate that a lot. So I don't know if any of it, it has any real value. I like it when it's a young team. I think it really helped the Celtics to get in there in the 16, 17 range with some of those young guys. I think it helped uh, Memphis last year just to be in that playing game and just have a taste of what it's like to have a real game with real stakes and real pressure and things like that. 
So Atlanta to me is a no-brainer. I, I, Golden State is a fascinating one because you could argue they had the year from hell. Wiseman, I think, is more of a project than, you know, maybe we anticipated. Maybe this is his redshirt season. Draymond can't score anymore. Curry has an incredible amount of pressure on him in these games. Not that Dame Lillard doesn't, by the way. But, um, you know, the fact that they're 23 and 26 kind of seems like a miracle. It doesn't feel like a lot of things have, have gone right for them. So let's say that Minnesota pick is like fourth or fifth. And let's say that Golden State pick is like ninth or tenth. And you have Clay coming back. Were you winning the title this year without Clay? No. Fundamentally, they're probably better off not even being in the playing game. But I know that I know that organization is not going to go for that. No, it doesn't sound like it. And that's the whole reason why they did the Ubre deal. And and again, why I don't, you know, some of these trades things, like some of the things didn't happen because it was just tougher to figure out. Like Golden State couldn't take more salary back. The Lakers, it was really hard for them to take a deal back where they were taking on more money, even if they thought they were close on some stuff. Um I you know, I think the biggest thing for Golden State is looking at their own pick now the Minnesota pick. And then, you know, Wiseman, I think, is in a tough spot because if Wiseman were on one of these horrible teams with no winning pedigree without, like, real guys where Curry was arguably, like, in the MVP conversation with the stuff that he was doing, um, Wiseman's held to a different standard. So when he screws up, it's worse. Where if he were with some of these other organizations, he'd be like, hey, why, you know who got 20 and 12 again the other night? Wiseman. You know, he's awesome. And it, and it might be worse for him long-term for his career. So maybe these bumps are good for him early on. But... Uh, you know, a healthy Curry in a playoff game is kind of exciting, but it really should be about packaging packaging those picks for the next mad superstar that goes, I'm going to play with the best backcourt of all time. That is a team in a playing game people would not be fired up to see. Um, the, uh, the Golden State thing, we got to do this quickly. There was this weird LeBron is recruiting Curry story that just seemed like sheer boredom from the media. I don't know where it was coming from. I don't know why anybody who's followed Curry's career at any point would think a, he would ever leave golden state B he would want to like jump on the LeBron bandwagon and like be LeBron's sidekick. Um, the whole thing was bizarre to me. I, I don't think it's been the tightest relationship over the years. I'm sure they'd get along better than maybe they used to be, but I thought that was one of the weirder fake stories that we've had. If he was ever going to go anywhere, the only place that makes sense is Charlotte to go home where his dad is. And you know, the place that he grew up as a kid and if he was ever going to leave someday to finish his career somewhere, it's going to be Charlotte. It's not going to be to be LeBron's lackey. It's not happening. Well, Windhorse brought it up and I believe the part of LeBron thinking he's recruiting Steph because it was odd. All of a I sudden, did too. Like, wait a minute. Like you, you like Steph because LeBron completely resented the idea that Steph was considered the best player in the world. And you know what? LeBron proved that it wasn't accurate. Steph had better seasons than LeBron during those years. He had better full end-to-end seasons than back-to-back MVP seasons. Like, Steph should not have been the MVP. But then it turns into, okay, Steph's the best player in the world because he was having better seasons. And LeBron's like, yeah, actually, there's stuff I can do in a playoff game that he can't do. All right? And as much as I love Steph, the biggest Steph lover has to admit that. And LeBron resented it. But LeBron is so powerful. He's arguably the most powerful individual athlete of our lifetime as far as team sports are concerned that he is always thinking of these angles. And so I thought it was weird when I'd see some of the interactions during All-Star Weekend where I was like, wait, so he, he picked him and then he's like talking him up. 
and you're like, motherfucker, you had a corpse at, his, at your Halloween party that you walked over on the way in. And yeah. so, look, LeBron, when he took Giannis in the first draft, that was a way of... Now, this is, I think, a comical waste of time that yeah. like Giannis would be a free agent and be like, you know what? LeBron did take me first overall in that first All-Star draft. Fuck it. Let's sign with him. Let's do this. You know, like Curry going, you know who was really complimentary of me All-Star weekend in 2021? LeBron. Yeah, I'm going to sign with the Lakers now. That was, that was really nice. He was always saying good stuff about me. So I think I'll go do that. <laughs> Curry goes home and, and his wife's like, how was All-Star weekend? He's like, you're not going to believe this. LeBron was talking to me the whole time. I feel like he wants me to play with him. That was the vibe I was getting. He kept saying like how great LA was and how cool it would be if we could play together. And I, it was just so exciting. I, I just feel like I'm ready to leave Golden State. He must have forgotten that I've already won three rings without him. Yeah, ridiculous. Um, all right, we're going to take one more break. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra. Nothing goes better with basketball than a nice cold bottle of Michelob Ultra, a superior light beer that makes watching a game so much better. Plus, we're getting into the summer months now, right? Get a little, you know, weekend finals game or a Stanley Cup game, whatever you want. Uh, a little cold brew. Maybe, maybe enjoy it on a Saturday or a Sunday night. Enjoy the game even more with Michelob Ultra. Make sure to stock up for the NBA Finals because this might be a long NBA Finals. You got to be ready. Order a pack of Michelob Ultra now on DoorDash.com. LDA, 21 and up. All right. Uh, some quick topics to run through. Buyout, guys. I talked to Raja about this and I suggested that they should at least pass a rule with the buyout guys just to make it a little bit higher degree of difficulty where if you're paying, if you get drumming the rest of the year, whatever the prorated games for his actual salary cap number should go against your tax for that year. So if it's like there, it's $8 million of his salary um, would be these Laker games that should count toward a tax. Maybe that's a way to do it. Then I was reading some other stuff, talking to people like you. And everybody had the same attitude, which is basically, why the fuck do we care about these buyout guys? None of them actually help teams. You are, you planted your flag on this island. Make the case that we should just never talk about this. All right. Here's the deal. There's a few guys. If you want to play exception game here, you can argue the exception. You can argue the PJ Brown, Boris Diaw, not only helped the Spurs, but he came, became a piece of it, which should have set us up for the template for Nick Batum's swindle as well, because he's been better with the Clippers. Um, but if you go through all the buyouts of the last 15 years or so, I remember worrying about Damon Stoudemire and going, God, I hope the Celtics get him. I hope the Celtics get him. I was on the TV broadcast for the pre half and post back then. And a month or so went by. He ends up with the Spurs, three points a game. We waited on Marbury's decision forever. He ends up in Boston. He ended up in China pretty quick after that. If you go through these, there isn't a high level of buyouts going to just major markets all the time. It's a little bit more split. Woj was great writing a piece about this, looking at it, saying, hey, if you look at the last 39 buyouts and how many guys actually contributed in playoffs, it's minimal. And how many guys are going to big market versus small market, it's actually pretty even. The point is this. it's Again, it's a recency bias thing that get you really excited. Uh, it's hard enough to trade in this league. I'm pro buyout adding another piece, getting excited. Drummond's probably going to fit great with the Lakers if he's healthy because he's going to play off LeBron in the lobs and add some size there. But it's a big waste of time being worried about it because it's usually that player's 
last move before we realize he's done playing. Chris Anderson in 2013 was another one with Miami. And those were special circumstances, right? He had had some real issues. He was a little bit younger. For the most part, I mailed you this. Somebody laid out 10 years of signings a couple of years ago on the internet. Uh, James Herbert. Shout out to James. At Great CBS. Piece, James. But he had all the lists. And I was dying reading these old ones. Like uh, 2008, the Pistons signed Theo Ratliff. 2009, Steph Marbury to the Celtics. Joe Smith to the Cavs. Oh, no. The Suns got Stromile Swift. That one the I like. Spurs liked. got Drew Gooden. Uh, 2010, I blocked this out of my mind. The Celtics signed Michael Finley. The Bucks signed Jerry Stackhouse. Uh, 2011 was some classics. That was Jason Williams to the Grizzlies. The Celtics signed Troy Murphy. Mike Bibby to the Heat. Remember all the Mike Bibby pieces? By the way, there was a standing ovation for Bibby when he was introduced at his first Heat game. Yeah, Mike Bibby. Mavericks, Corey Brewer. Oh, there's like, I, did he end up playing for them? I feel like he got, I think he did. Cause they won the title. Did he play? So that might've been a good one. Um, uh, Celtics San Carlos Arroyo. You go to 2012. Um, oh, this was a great one. The Grizzlies signed Gilbert Arenas. Yep. That was really fun. Um, the Knicks on Kenyon Martin in 2013. Derek Fisher to the Thunder was a half-decent one, although you could argue he actually played too many minutes for them. Uh, but yeah, going through some classics. I forgot about this one. The Pacers and Andrew Bynum. I remember doing countdown segments that year talking about whether what kind of impact Bynum was going to have on that Pacers team. Little did we know his career is over. Mavericks, Amari Stoudemire, 2015. Cavs, Kendrick Perkins, 2015. On and on and on, leading to your favorite, the uh, Darren Williams and Andrew Bogut combo for the Cavs that year. That was the that was the that was it. That was the pinnacle. That was Apex Mountain for bad buyout settings. Quick Brewer update before we get back to that. He played three minutes, twenty five seconds, eight minutes, one minute, four minutes, and then four minutes, and then we didn't see him in the finals during that Mavs playoff. Oh, run. So, so actually not. No, he, so he okay. did play, but he barely played for him. I think he was 13 games overall in the regular season. The Cavs adding Bogut for a possession and then Darren Williams for essentially nothing. I'll never forget when it first started dawning on me. I should have learned the lesson after the Damon Stoudemire wasting a month on that watch because that's what we did every night on that Celtics broadcast. We'd be like, oh, Damon Stoudemire, how would he fit in as a Celt? What number do you think he'll wear in case he would retire here? You know, and I remember, I'm not going to say his name, but a very prominent national talk show host said once the Cavs got Bogut and Williams, the power had shifted away from Golden State back to Cleveland. And yeah. that was after you were like, wait, what? Like, you think those two guys? And like, oh, Bogut's going to have all the angles, going to figure everything out. Now, again, Bogut got hurt immediately in the first game. Can I make a small but, counter? Yeah. The salaries are so high now that the buyout, the quality of the buyout guys might be getting better just because it's impossible to trade somebody who's making $30 million a year. Like, Kevin Love might be a buyout guy next year. And his career will not be over if he's a buyout guy. So um, I, to okay. me, it's like, it's not a question of what do we do about these buyout guys? It's, it's, to me, it's more of a question of what do we do with the trade rules? Why do we have the same rules that we had before? Why can't we switch it so that it's only 50% of the salary that you can trade first rounders in four straight years? Like, like let's make it easier to trade. And then we won't have these dumb situations where Andre Drummond just goes to the Lakers for free. I think he's at a different level than uh, Blake and LaMarcus because there's very strong cases that Blake and LaMarcus will fit onto that list of all the guys I just read year by year of the uh, 
Gilbert Arenas type guys that they might just not have a lot left to tank. I think Blake has a better chance just because of his defense to maybe have an impact for them. But Drummond might actually really help the Lakers, you know? And I do think if they made the trade rules a little different, it would have been easier for the Cavaliers to trade him and get something for him versus just buying him out. And that's what they should fix. See, that's why I've never had a problem with the buyout part of it. And, and part of the suggestion was maybe you have the buyout before because the other dirty secret of the whole thing, it's not a secret really, but it's just something worth mentioning again, is that the agents can control it and then scare everybody off to trade for them by saying, hey, my guy's going to get a buyout and I want him to get a buyout so that he can go to the team that he wants to go to. And it may not even be just a winning situation. It's we know we want him bought out here so he can go and play here and get more minutes because he's going to be free agent. He's going to be up. But then the buyout thing, you start getting so excited when you're a fan because it's like, cool, I get to add somebody else. Um, I remember there was a proposal in Woj's piece where somebody was like, we should have the buyout market expiration first and then the trade deadline after it. But it's just kind of like the NFL versus NBA free agency draft order. What does everybody seem to say about all the time, like when the, when the, when the NFL draft happens? It's like, you know, if the draft were before free agency, we'd be able to draft who we want and then fill the holes in in free agency. And people are like, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And then in the NBA, it's like, man, it'd be great if we had free agency before the draft, because then we'd be able to see who we could get on the open market. And then if we don't get who we want, then we can go ahead and draft somebody else. So no matter which way it's set up in order, people are going to complain about it. So because the league, I agree with you, it's so hard to pull off the trades, although it's been a little easier than what it used to be on the trade on the money percentages that had to move around. But with the salaries going up and the apron and, and some of these restrictions, I'm okay with buyouts and they're massively overrated. And that brings us back to my final thought on the next piece of this bill is that this is where the coverage where, yeah, I'm just going to say it. Like, I just look at so many of our colleagues and I think, do you want to tell the truth right now or do you want to lie to the audience? Because when you put up a graphic of Kyrie's all-star resume, Harden's all-star resume, Durant's all-star resume, that's an incredible resume. But when you put LaMarcus Aldridge's all-star game appearances next to Blake Griffin's all-star game appearance, and then add them all up and try to sell me some bullshit, it means you either are purposely disingenuous or you just are so addicted to the graphic looking cool when it's not what it is. And that's why Blake Griffin is great whenever he talks because Blake goes, wait, I sucked for months. People were making fun of me every fucking game. Every, like anytime you'd watch League Pass, the new announcers on the opposing broadcast would be like, oh, Blake Griffin ain't what he used to be. And now he's an all-timer who's awesome right now. And the weird thing about that argument about all the all-star appearances now on that Nets roster is that, one, they're probably better playing Nick Claxton than LaMarcus Aldridge in the first place. So buying mm. out Aldridge and then bringing him in may screw up a nice piece that you found that was already on your bench because everybody should be able to produce offensively being the other two guys outside of those three when they have things going. Shit, even when it's just Kyrie and Harden. But it, it then mutates into this other argument that isn't about the all-star appearances. It's, hey, I'm a LeBron guy, so I found a way to make a pro-LeBron argument about the Nets because that'll be an awesome argument where now I get to say, look what the Nets had to do to stop LeBron. And you're like, wait. And I saw a bunch of people do this. And you go, this isn't even about the Nets. It's not even about buyouts. You've created some stack of all-star games that make you feel better about your pro argument, like your pro LeBron position? Like, what are we even doing? Like, I had lost track five minutes into it. Can we talk about the Paul Pierce thing? Yes. So it's like a little past eight, eight o'clock Pacific time now. Um, 
Does he last the week at ESPN? What happens? This is a pretty rare case. By the way, I have no inside info. I don't think you do probably either. Um, this is a pretty rare case where a talent who's on the air for them on a signature show, I would say he's he's a borderline signature guy for them. He just kind of said, fuck it. And, and did this Instagram live and there's strippers in the background and they're throwing chips at the strippers. He seems... He seems uh, not. We've been to turkeys. Not sober. Um, I don't know. It was. I don't know how. Like, does he get suspended or fired? What would be your pick? Uh, I think in the moment, everybody kind of loses their minds about punishment. And it's like, oh, my gosh, you know, like this guy's never, ever going to stay. And I think you and I probably have better insight from our time there, specifically me understanding punishment. Um, How about me? You, I also understand punishment. Yeah, but you got punished because you were you were you were poking the bear. Um, yeah, I, I got punished because you know I embarrassed myself and I embarrassed the company because my room key worked on the wrong door at a hotel. And then you know once everybody figured it out the next day. So me specifically, when I got into trouble, I was like, okay, well, this is what happened. And they go, okay, we know you're not lying, but you still did something bad. So you need, need to be punished. And I was like, yeah, I agree. I'm not going to, I'm not fighting you on it. Like, I agree. And then we're good to go. But my, <laughs> I, I always, I, I don't know enough about Paul, but usually if they want to get rid of somebody, it'd be a culmination of things. So if everybody's cool hmm. with Paul and they think he just made a mistake, I don't think he deserves to get fired my, I see. This is a weird spot to be in, you know. I, I, my guess would be that he wouldn't be, even though it's a bad look. And you always have to remember you're working for Disney, you know. Like you're reminded of that quite a bit when you're at least on campus. And that's why I always resented all you guys that didn't have to walk around Bristol for a decade plus because you'd be like, "Well, I know what it's like." I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> you're not in the hallway every day, five days a week for hallways years. and cafeterias. Yeah. Um, does that make sense this- to you? It does. I think he gets suspended, not fired, because I think for the most part, I think he's a light guy. So it's like, all right, was this really just a one really dumb mistake? Should we give him a mulligan on this? So maybe it'll be his mulligan. I will say this. Definitely one of the top five or six weirdest NBA social media stories, I think, ever. Like ever? I, I just couldn't sure believe that's not it. Recency bias? I just couldn't believe it. It's the kind of mistake people made with the internet and with social media in like 2008 and 2009, before people realized ramifications for things, how things quickly, nobody makes mistakes like this anymore on social media. And which leads me to think like, maybe he didn't even think it was a mistake. Like I really, I try to shy away from a lot of these media stories because I just don't care. This one, I'm actually really interested to see how it unfolds over the next couple of days. Like, what's he going to say? Is he going to go on the jump the next like two days? Are they going to talk about it? Are they going to address it? Because the way to really do it correctly is just to address it, be upfront about it, make light of it, and you move on and people forget. But they're kind of going to have to do that on a Monday or a Tuesday on on a show unless he gets suspended. When you got suspended, yeah, was there ever like a... Didn't you get suspended from Twitter once? I did. I think what twice. Was that? I think twice. Think how silly that punishment is. Now I'm like, yeah, okay. Like, oh no. Yeah, that's weird. I, it took you a Will you suspend a long time. me from it? <laughs> I wish I've tried. 
I think ESPN, it took them a long time to realize that sometimes the punishment causes more news coverage than the initial story. And I think they've now unlocked that and figured it out. Because You know what, though? I don't think Pierce... There's another part of the story that's my favorite part that we haven't even touched on yet. He tweeted at 8 o'clock Pacific time last night, good morning. Right. And after that, like, I wanted to buy his jersey because I don't think he thought he was making a mistake. I think he's like, look, I'm IG live. And I think we both understand this really well. When you are a, you know, it's not like Pierce is, is, you know, Kobe or something like that. But when you're at that level and you have a media job, you don't look at it the same way as 99% of us. You're like, all right, you know, like, yeah, I'm on TV. I chop it up for a little bit. This team's good. This one isn't. What's up? I, you're you're right. No, you're wrong. And I'm an NBA guy who's worth millions in my hometown. And if you're in LA, come through. And I'm going to post it because that's just what I'm going to do. And if he's cool, if, if people are cool with him and they like him, and I don't know that they are or aren't. I've never heard that they aren't. And again, I haven't worked there in a year and a half. Um, I, I always think when people look at punishment, the worst time to figure out how somebody's going to be punished is immediately after the act. You know, give it a few days and it's like, oh, okay. Because he, 24 hours later, he didn't seem to be bummed out about it at all. And I'm sure somebody had to have reached out to him at that point. No? I'm sure it's being discussed right now. Um J.J. Redick traded from the Pelicans to the Mavericks and then uh, complained about it on a podcast, said they, uh, the Pelicans broke their word to him, said they were going to either send him close to home or whatever. And, um, felt like Griffin basically lied to him, called him out. And then the next day, it was interesting that even on the jump, like uh, Ho Robert Horry and I forget who the other player was, both of them kind of laid into Redick. was like, hey, man, it's a business. You don't get to pick where you play. That's, why, that's what the checks are for. I was actually surprised that he complained. Um, you know, if you're the Pelicans, cool. We'll, we'll, try to, we'll try to accommodate you, but ultimately they're going to do what's best for the team and he's going to do what's best for him because he's ca cashing big paychecks every year. You know, same way he went from Philly to New Orleans. That was what was best for him. Uh, I was I was just surprised because I think he's a really smart athlete. I was surprised he didn't see the piece that it's hard to complain when you're making that kind of money and and to to just buy him out versus what New Orleans was able to get out of the trade, which is just better than a buyout. Of course, they were going to do that. Yeah, Griff's job, as Stan pointed out, your first obligation is to the franchise. But there was something JJ said that was so specific that I tend to believe JJ that JJ's argument was when I signed the two-year deal at good money at that age, that I was told, you know, we'll do this deal now, but we'll get you where you need to go. You know? So to, is JJ telling, like, it's such a specific thing. Like whenever I think somebody's lying, I'll be like, okay, are you being vague or are you being specific? And when it's really specific, I don't think the person's lying. Now, is Griff's yep. version of the story like, hey, we told him we'd work with him and his agent, right. but we didn't promise anything? Or is JJ telling us the truth that it's like, no, no, they were so specific about it. That's why I took the deal in the first place and signed down there and, and moved on. But I mean, in that spot as a GM, when you're looking at getting back something you kind of like, I think you're always going to rule that way. Um, but I, that, that one I like was that a really weird Dallas. one. Yeah, that, I thought that was a weird one, too. Um. By the way, the Pelicans just passed the Rockets as we're taping this. The Pelicans were going to lose to the Rockets, but I think the Rockets now 
went into a full tank mode. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Can you believe how fast this year is going? So much has happened, even with just sports. I mean, me personally, we finally started doing some YouTube stuff and we have some channels now. We've been doing live broadcasts. It's been super fun. You never know. Got to challenge yourself every year. With so much going on, though, it's important to slow down, too. Take a minute to reflect on yourself. And if you need a little help with that, therapy is a great option. You can learn positive coping skills for when you're stressed. You can learn to set boundaries and enforce them. You can learn how to be the best version of yourself. You can learn to work through anything, not just major traumas. If you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, flexible, designed to be convenient. All you have to do is to get started is to fill out a brief questionnaire. Plus, you can switch therapists whenever you need to for no additional charge. So take a moment for yourself. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Bill Simmons. That's my name. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Bill Simmons today to get 10% off your first month. That is BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Bill Simmons. This episode is supported by State Farm. If you ever been in an accident and you're okay, but you know what happened? Your first reaction is going to be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car or a new anything, there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it. I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. All right, before we go, do you have any non-sports shit you want to hit? Because this is the part of the podcast where we get weird. Oh man, I uh I I love this stuff. I I went to Tulum finally. So that was a real thing. You actually did go. <laughs> yeah, people thought I was just screwing around on Instagram. So it's the first time that I've taken off since August of 19. And I'm just going to tell you on the way back, it was it was a little reminder we were like, oh, this is why traveling out of the country, especially during COVID protocol, like isn't the easiest deal. <laughs> <laughs> so you got to get a test the day of which you know i got a test on the way out i got a test on the way back but then the guy's like yeah you get your test results here and i'm like no no i came here because the results are quicker like my flight's in a few hours and he's like no i go dude there's a chance you're gonna i'm gonna be in a two-hour cab ride from the resort back to cancun and i'm gonna find out at like hour 40 that i have covid and i can't get on the flight like I was, I was like the hotel set up this appointment based on what my needs were. And he was like, yeah, we'll figure it out, man. <laughs> I was just like, okay. Oh, no. <laughs> so I get the test. I hang out for a bit, try to get the most, the rest of the day in. Um, you know, I went to a couple art festivals. I actually did a spoken word thing myself at this yoga studio, but you know, there'll be a video out probably later. And once I got to the uh, to the airport, <laughs> this guy immediately just grabs my bags. He's like, I got you, amigo. I was like, all right, you know, first class service. Let's go. Obviously, he wanted to tip the whole deal. So I tip him pretty well because that's the thing. It's like when you're in a spot like this and you don't really know what's going on, find somebody who does and just tip them. And I can't emphasize how much better your life is going to be for a very small investment and just navigating all of it. So he gets me right up to the front of the line, the whole deal. And I bought it through Delta. and. 
the woman behind the counter barely speaks any English and she's like, you still owe us money. I'm like, what do you mean I owe you money? She's like, you only paid for half the ticket. And I was like, no. I go, there's no version of an app purchase on a phone where they're just magically charging me for like half when you pick your origination and then the destination. Like I bought tickets before for a plane ride. Like that's, there's no way this is the way it works. And she's like, I'm holding on to your connection because I had to connect and I'm holding on to your baggage claim, which you've already checked your bag and I'm not giving it to you until you pay the rest of the bill. And I was like, this is insane. So I then have to go over to like- Right. Then I have to go to like a main desk and I'm over there and the guy's like, yep. He goes, you know, you owe us $260 or whatever, you know, and he's in Spanish. And I'm, I'm not being able to figure it out. I'm like, what are you talking? And he writes it down. He's like, you owe us $260 more. And I'm like, this is crazy. But you're, you're looking at your watch and you're going, all right, what's the deal? I've got my app open. I've got my paperwork filled out, passport this, tickets, the this whole sounds deal. Like, this sounds like Broke Down Palace too. This is like the first 15 minutes of it. You owe me $260 more. All of a sudden you're in a jail in Tulum. <laughs> I like my chances of breaking out of jail in Tulum, not Mexico City. That's just a, that's Fair. a vibe I got. That's a vibe that I got. But Fair. I think I may have been in the prequel to Unhinged with Russell Crowe where he plays a bear. <laughs> yeah. Have you seen that? <laughs> yes. You didn't see it, have did I... you? Russell, yes, of course I did. You watched it? Yeah. Which, the Russell Crowe, the Road Rage movie? Yeah. Yeah. What'd I you think? Would... Give me a quick... I liked it. I liked it. First of all, I've seen every movie. Um, Second Fair. of all, I'm so fascinated by this stage of Russell Crowe's career where he's just not the proof of life guy anymore, but he's kind of embraced it. And he's just playing like these crazy middle-aged parts. Like he's playing Roger Ailes. He's playing crazy road rage guys. Uh, I, I can't really describe a common theme other than he's entering a Nick Cage zone, it seems like. I'm when worried. Nick Cage, I'm really Nick worried. Nick Cage lost it. And you're like, wow, Nick Cage is in that movie? And then there was like five in a row. It's like, oh, this is just who Nick Cage is. I feel like Russell Crowe is inching that way. I watched it on the flight. And I got to tell you, it felt like LeBron demanding a trade to the Wizards. Because when I looked at the, everybody else in the movie, nothing against them. But Russell Crowe is one of the great actors of our lifetime. And he's, he's great in the role. And he's up to, what, 280, 290? He's a massive yeah. human being in this movie. And it's gross. Um, I didn't love it. You liked it more than I did. But I was fascinated I like road, by I like road rage movies. They always, I even like that Affleck road rage movie with Sam Jackson. Locke? No, Changing Lanes. Oh, okay. My bad. So I needed to know more about the movie when I got home and I started researching it. And then I was, I love, I love actors explaining movies. I'm, I just love it. Cause then he was like, I just think, you know, in today's time, we're understanding in the Western hemisphere that rage and the struggle of man, but yet, and I was like, eh. Yeah, you just or, drove or right out of the truck. You five million yeah. bucks. Yeah, you got divorced in the movie, and you had a truck, and you started smashing into shit. Like you know, I don't know that the Western Hemisphere needs to be used to describe anything of that eighty-minute movie that I just watched. So, the lady comes over, says, "My mistake." After the hustle, yeah. hands me the rest of my stuff, and I go, "Okay, so I'm good to go." And she's like, "Yes," and I go, "Okay, which flight?" And she's like, "Oh, wrong terminal." So now. I get brought to the right terminal. As soon as I get off there, a cab driver's like, you're at the wrong terminal. $20 to go to the right terminal. And I'm like, so wait a minute. I go, there's four terminals here at this airport. And I've somehow managed to go to all three of the wrong ones. I was like, that does, you know, something seems off here. 
I grab a security guard. I show him my ticket. And then he points to the stairwell to my gate. And I look at the cab driver. And I was like, you seriously were just like, do I have asshole shirts on today? Like, I can't, I couldn't figure it out. And, you know, look, there's, there's some more aggressive American looks in Tulum than anything that I was rocking. I was in shorts and a sweatshirt. So then you've got to have all your COVID stuff ready so you can show to everybody. And then I do this weird thing where when I go through security line, I pick somebody else that has to make the decision at the split. And then I'm in a competition with them the rest of the security line. And that's my and thing. That was it? Yeah. Like a re- then, almost like a Russell Crowe and Hinge road rage thing. Kind of. Because if I lose, it puts me in a mood for about an hour. I was like, you picked wrong. And that guy smoked you by like seven people. Does that guy know that you've picked him? Is he aware that there's a competition in the works? No, he doesn't know. He never knows. Whoever it is. Sometimes it's a woman. You know? Yeah, it doesn't but matter. It doesn't matter. I'll just be like, okay, I think I have the angle here. I'll try to like rapid count like a fire clerk or something like that. But yeah, whatever. Um, I made it back. So, but I, I would say Tulum, good, good hang, very quiet, very laid back vacation. Didn't didn't do much. B plus. Just getting out of Manhattan Beach for the first time in a year was was kind of weird because I was like, you sat here by yourself almost solo the entire time. And that was that was a long time, even for me. So w- when you talk about taking stuff personally, like yes. with the like when in lines. Or getting like weirdly competitive for no reason at all. Yeah, all the time. So that's probably one of my biggest character faults is uh, as a driver, because I I don't know if you know this, but I'm one of the one of the world's greatest drivers. Like I really am. I'm an amazing. Oh, I've met driver. guys like you. No, I love. I'm yeah, Danny Cannell is that way. Yeah, I'm the guy you. I'm the guy you want driving back from Vegas to LA. So, but my daughter's had all these soccer games all over the place, like Arizona, Vegas. We've had. We, we did Vegas 24 hours back and forth, you know, four hours each way. And I've tried to calm down and not be that guy anymore. But then people will just kind of annoy me on the road where it's like, what makes oh, you not- a great driver? First of all, I love whenever any of you guys say this stuff, I'm always immediately skeptical. What makes you so great, Bill? The ability to go at a high level of speed. But, but it seems like you're, it's a smooth ride. It's not like a herky jerky changing the, you know, like stop and start hitting the brake. I like on those long road trips, the, the person who's in the passenger seat, not even to realize that we're going really fast or that we're just flying or whatever. It's just like, part of it should be, you're just gliding along going like they, like the, there's a degree of difficulty on the long road trips where it's just, you're going fast, but nobody in the car is even realizing it. But then sometimes you'll see these people who are like, they're trying to be the cool weaving through the lanes. And it's just like, they're bad at it. And they, they're going, they're trying to beat somebody down the right lane, not realizing that that truck is actually going a little bit too slow. They got to slam on their brakes, come back, go around. And I just hate those people. And then I take it personally and I end up like kind of pseudo racing with them a little bit. That's my character flaw. I'm opening up here on the podcast. So what I've learned is, because I was thinking, after I got done with Unhinged, I went, you know, it'd be a fun, and people, somebody's probably already done this before, where you would review a movie on Twitter in just one post and get it wrong on purpose, where it'd be like, woman who has trouble with punctuality and holding down job, right. <laughs> aggressively annoys fellow driver. <laughs> you would be like, well, that's, 
not really what the movie is, but whatever. <laughs> so, so you're what I'm learning here is that that's why you like Unhinged because you agreed with Russell Crowe's character despite the no, murdering part. No, 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 <laughs> did not agree with the Russell courtesy Crow tap, character. courtesy tap. No, that's all you no. want, Bill. I just think when you're on the road, you get bored. You start looking for little challenges, right? Like the the guy who goes by and kind of gives you the look. It's like, oh, really? You're okay. Are, are, we're going now. We're going to drive. We're going to try to see who can weave through lanes faster for the next. And then my daughter's freaking out and go, dad, dad, no, no. This is why I said it's a character flaw. Do you think it's the vanity ringer plate with a dollar sign on that green McLaren <laughs> that you have? <laughs> Where are you on van? What vanity plate would you get? <laughs> would you get? I bid our- on a, I, I bid on a, the Smokey and the Bandit edition of the Firebird this, this past week. <laughs> I'm totally serious. I bid on it. And then when I lost, I was like, you know what? I just avoided a pretty big hassle there, but I was going to get bandits on, on a vanity plate and just be, and listen to David Lee Roth, not Van Halen, but solo David Lee Roth, eat him and smile and drive around Manhattan beach and just be like, you guys think you're cool in your Broncos? Like I, I'm doing this all summer when things open up and I may even start smoking. Well, you know, when I moved to LA, I was shocked by the amount of vanity plates. I've never had one. Have you? Way more than in Massachusetts. Well, Massachusetts, that's just another thing to get punched for. So that's why they don't have them there. Not guys. Fair. Um, Before we go, you want to hear about drunk Kyle? Yes. Everybody does. Kyle is, his approval rating on my podcast is through the roof. On the life advice stuff, people, people actually don't even want to hear from me at the end of the pod that much anymore. Kyle's Kyle's dad, stepmom, and uh, little brother came up to visit for my father-in-law, mother-in-law's 60th wedding anniversary last weekend. Oh, well, so they're all together. Kyle, when the family's together, he starts fast drinking because he's 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 so happy and excited. He becomes like fast drinking Kyle, and it's my favorite Kyle. It's unanimous approval in the Simmons family for happy fast drinking Kyle is our favorite. Gets a little loud, but not too loud. Just, I could see him being a great drunk. Cross, like a little Ed McMahon Tonight Show. Like he really sells your jokes. You feel great. You feel as funny as you've ever been. Um, just <laughs> ready to go, ready to make, ready to drink whatever mixed drink you're ready to make them. Uh, just having a good time. Shout out to Drunk Kyle. Kyle, you want to follow up here? Thanks. No, um, I love being drunk Kyle and I'm glad you love drunk Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> Drunk Kyle has really been a a victim of the pandemic because it's not that much fun to be drunk Kyle when you're just stuck in your apartment with your girlfriend and that's it. That's sad Kyle. Yeah. Yeah. Drunk. That's drunk and sad Kyle, which nobody likes. What what people like are post pandemic. The bars are back. Drunk Kyle is back. That's where we need to get to. It's one of the many reasons we're reading for vaccines. Russell has no comment. No, I don't. I, I want to drink with Kyle at some point, but I mean, I I haven't had, I'm, a, you, I'm like, a, go ahead. Are you a subscriber to as soon as we're past all this stuff, it's going to be basically like what we read about in the 19, late 1970s when all hell broke loose for like three years? I don't know if it's going to be three years, but anybody, anytime somebody says like, oh, I'm worried about small venue clubs, like don't. Oh, I'm worried about some of these. But it is going to be unhinged. It's going to be peak people going like, hey, you know what? 
Like it was, it was awful for a lot of people. It was a challenge for most people. I tried not to complain. I hope I didn't throughout at all because I didn't really have it that bad in comparison to so many other people. But I think that we are by default social people and we want to be around other people. I, I think most of us do. I may, I may not want to be, I, I think it's going to be one of the most excited groups of people going out and the younger generation is going to try to make up for this year plus in a way that we haven't seen. Now we're too old for that, which is probably good, but yeah, whenever I hear from somebody around my age, it's like, Oh, I don't, I think it's going to be kind of a slow. I'm like, no, it isn't. Once no these vaccination way. numbers are higher, it's going to be a free for all. Well, that, I, I mean, the mass thing is the biggest piece of this, right? You can't even like think about facial cues and smiles and instant attractions and just, making somebody laugh and seeing their reaction. And it's like, everyone's wearing a fucking mask. It's like watching hockey, not, not knowing what, what player is what was you're watching some random I, regular season hockey game. I kind of like it though. Cause I started going bandana, like cowboy thing. I might, oh. I may keep it. I liked how it's looked. You might, you might keep it long-term just yeah. to keep it going. Yeah. They'll be like, that guy takes viruses seriously. <laughs> Well, now we're in this weird zone where some people have been vaccinated. So if you see somebody who doesn't have a mask on, you think, well, maybe that person's had the vaccine, but yet they should still probably have the mask on. That's what everybody says. But now it's just before it was pretty clear, like, wait, you don't have a mask on like some you're doing some power walk and some joggers just jogging right by you. And, you know, they don't have a mask on. You're like, all right, what the fuck, dude? Like show a little respect. Now, now it's harder to gauge with this stuff. We're in, yeah, a, weird, I'm not, we're in a weird tweener time. Yeah. You know, back to the very beginning, we talked about this and this ended up being more severe and longer term than, than I ever thought at the beginning. But I like everything. I have a hard time with anybody that would be an expert about something new. But yeah. if the uncertainty was, hey, stay inside and wear a mask whenever you go out, like that's not a hard thing to do. You know, that just wasn't a hard thing to do. But I do wonder, you know, long-term how we'll look at this and if it's just a different, hey, there's different strains of this and that's why certain things happen this way and we didn't know this then or maybe this is something that we did we didn't have to do. But as much of this was a sacrifice, it wasn't that big of a deal to be asked to wear a mask all the time. And I think people that were policing it are probably going to get really mad about it. But, you know, do you also want to be in a position where you're screaming at somebody who's been vaccinated? And then they're like, hey, I've been vaccinated. And then you're like, how do you feel? So, yeah, I, I get the sacrifice people have made with all of this, but I think it's 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 really hard, man, because people are still so worked up about certain elements of this that, I don't know, I would just keep it on until we feel like we're in the clear because I don't think it's that big of a deal to keep it on. But I also wasn't going to tweet to everybody every fucking day in the beginning of this saying, wear a mask, Lecture. wear a mask, wear a mask, because that's not really my role. Like you want to hear about me talking about Romeo Langford, not, not to tell you what you need to do because now I'm a virus expert after a week. One benefit of it is I've noticed because my parents are vaccinated now, you like they, they just are acting differently. I think- No kidding. Like how when, so? My mom is a lot happier. My dad seems a little more relaxed as well. But I, I think my mom was really worried. Like, could get COVID, I'd die alone in my condo. Like, nobody would know, you know? And I've just noticed, like, a totally different kind of energy from her. I think when you're over 70, this thing is like, COVID would look at you and you're done, right? You're just living with that every day. And whether people were talking about it or not, I think there was 
there was real abject fear. Like my dad wasn't leaving the house. He wasn't really going anywhere. And then finally we got him to fly across country. He's basically wearing a hazmat suit to come see us. Um, this was like, what, five, six months ago, just because he was like, all right, so I'm in my early 70s here. I'm just not going to see my grandkids anymore. This is going to be the rest of my life. Like I'm not going to see my family. I think that, I think there was a lot of internal struggles with the mortality of it, with not being able to see people that you loved when there's like a time limit on how long you could see them, how many years you had left with whoever. And, uh, and the vaccine seems to have removed some of that. It's my, my armchair QB take. No, that's not an armchair QB. That's, that's really well said. Um, because I'm by myself so much, sometimes it's easier for me to not think about that part of it. But I know the sound of my father's voice after his first vaccine shot where he calls me, he's like, hey. And I'm thinking like, oh, okay, you're right. Because I left from the time my father was in the hospital for something going back to last year, which was fine. You know, it wasn't, it was fine. I didn't leave at all for, you know, a year plus. And then I went back one time and I took a test before I left. I took a test when I landed because I was like, all right, and then I'll quarantine for a couple of days just to make sure. And my father was still a little bit like, hey, you know, if you come by, maybe we'll eat outside or something like that. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? Like you, you and even if, your father's healthy or my, you know, lucky enough to have our dads around still in our lives. That part to go, hey, the the end for me, like I don't want to be wasting too much more time here because I, you know, I'm sure once you start getting into your 70s, you start thinking about things in a different way. We're like, hey, I want to make the most of this. And then you're basically the end of your life was put on pause and you didn't know when it was going to be, you know, when we were gonna hit play again. So uh I don't think that's armchair QB in at all. I think it's a reality of it. It was really well said. Sal, you know, when I shared an office with Sal and he used to torture me when I had to write jokes and he would just ask me these weird abstract questions that I would have to answer. And I remember one time we were sitting there and I had to, I was working on something. He was just like bugging me. And, uh, he was like, Hey, do you ever think like your dad's in Boston, right? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, how many more times do you think you'll see him? Like 37 times. I think we've talked about this. I think I've told the story. <laughs> And I was like, no, I'll see more than that. And he's like, no, no, do the math. And now I'm, now I'm like, fuck. So I'm fucked like, up. Yeah. And now, now I'm like, wait a second. All right. So if I see him twice a year, go, go through. I'm like, you motherfucker. Why, why did you get me to think about this? But yeah, I do think, I think when you get older, you think a lot about that stuff. I, I'm thinking about it now with my kids. Like my daughter's about to finish 10th grade. Like she's going to be in college in two and a half years. And it's like, that's it. It'll that the relationship will at that point she goes on. You just won't see them as much. They're not gonna be around. This is somebody that has been in my house since 2005 every week. And then you and now, like, yeah, but think about this on the reverse side of everything we just talked at one spectrum about COVID. The other side is the extreme of the young kids that are like, all right, we had plenty of time during COVID. I, I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah, I'm good. Dad, <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> Uh, all right, we're going to wrap up because my AirPods are dying again. So we should mention you did an awesome two-part series with uh, the ABA stories. Um, oh, thanks. That's That ran on the feed last week. If you missed it, if you love the ABA, I talked about it on the last pod I did, but check that out. And then you have two more this week. And then I guess we're going to go every other week probably until we hit that playing game weekend. And then we'll go every Sunday after that the rest of the way. So that's going to be, I guess, the third week of of May. And then we'll have a lot of basketball. Hopefully it's high caliber. Anyway, Rosillo, good to see you. Glad you made it out of Tulum.
All right, that's it for the podcast. I have two more coming for you this week. Don't forget, New York, New York, John Yastrzemski, it's up. The podcast has launched. It is going full speed. And uh, the rewatchables, Lethal Weapon, coming Monday night. See you then. This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe. The world can be pretty dangerous, so it's nice to know Simply Safe has my back with advanced home security that puts me first. What are you worried about? What are you worried about in life? Well, if you're a parent, you're constantly worried about your kids, the health and safety of your kids. Uh, maybe you're a dog person. Maybe maybe it's just you and your dog. Maybe you're like, every time I leave, I'm terrified somebody's gonna take my dog. Keep you and your loved ones safe. And don't worry about any of this stuff. Try Simply Safe today. Right now, my listeners can get an exclusive 20% discount on a new system with fast protect monitoring, which is great, by the way. Just go to simplysafe.com slash BS. Once again, Simply Safe with two eyes, simplysafe.com slash BS. There's no safe like Simply Safe. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. Guys, if you want to improve your self care game, you're going to need a good defensive line. Dr. Squatch gives you that especially their new private hygiene products. They were designed to help you look and feel fresh everywhere. Like the groin guardian trimmer, easy to use, versatile, perfect for grooming below the belt. And the ball barrier dry lotion prevents chafing while beast wipes keep you clean front to back. It's the care your body deserves. Try them today. Whether you're new to Dr. Squatch or use it every day, get 15% off your order by going to Dr. Squatch dot com slash Simmons one five or use the code Simmons one five at checkout.